most podcasters are at least either lazy, boring, or stupid. <laughs> you're only, you're lucky if they're only one of those things. The most popular ones are two, and the like. The top ones are at least like three, you know. So um, <laughs> once you have that combination, it's like so easy to beat the competition. Like if fundamentally, in every society, there are people who are just like really interested in achieving things in making something of themselves. These people need to tell us a story of like why they wanted to do those things. But it's like fundamentally, the story is like it's in your nature, right? And I think like probably something like effective altruism attracts a lot of them. It is always disappointing when you see somebody who you respected as a cultural commentator, as a political commentator, and then when they start talking about technology. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Jorakesh Patel, an incredibly interesting fellow podcaster and substacker. He is probably, I think, the youngest uh, podcast guest who I've had on the show, either him or Bohan Lowe. And he has many similar cultural backgrounds and experiences growing up uh, across America. We discussed this as well as his broader ideas on economic progress, on talent, on podcasting, and how he's put together such a successful show. He runs, by the way, the Lunar Society podcast, which I listen to and I definitely recommend for you guys. Uh, Touches on similar subjects, maybe more on the tech side and less on the politics side but still many, many interesting conversations that I would definitely recommend. Uh, As always, uh, the best thing you can do to help the show is to let a friend know. If you, uh, or if you have a friend who has this kind of similar interest as you, then the odds are that person will enjoy listening to the show. So not only are you helping us, but you're helping that friend as well. And you can do that either in person or on social media. Without further ado, here's Jorakesh Patel. Overrated or underrated Zoomer culture? <laughs> hmm. I think it's overrated in the sense that I don't even think it's a coherent term. People, you know, people will do these skits like on SNL or something where they'll make fun of Zoomer culture or the way in which Zoomers speak or something. And as a Zoomer myself, I, I don't know if this is your experience as well, but I have really never... It just like none of my friends talk the way Zoomers are supposed to talk, except when they're doing it ironically. So it doesn't even seem to me that there is a coherent Zoomer culture. Um, maybe it's underrated in the sense that there are some really funny things on, you know, YouTube or Twitter where just like funny memes that Zoomers came up with. I don't know if you're familiar with the channel uh, Internet Historian. Um, yeah. It's like one of the most entertaining YouTube channels out there. And I'm pretty sure a Zoomer is the one making it. And I don't know if that's oh, Zoomer culture, but... Uh, I, I would say underrated. Yeah, this is something I've been wanting to do is to grab like anonymous like YouTube creators, like basically, basically Alex Kashuda's podcast, but not focused on like the dissident right. Like Alex Kashuda takes like online, you know, pseudonymous posters from the dissident right. I I don't want to like know. I don't want like more political theory from anonymous accounts. I want like <laughs> I want the person who makes like the the Genshin Impact Gnosticism. Uh, theories to come on my podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah anyways yeah yeah, so for the audience for the audience uh there should already be an intro they they know generally who you are but i think it's it's actually quite interesting your bio and your zoom and like the stuff that we're going to talk about around zoomer culture don't normally talk about bio but i do think it's relevant here 
because you you've talked about it too. You talk about CS as a your CS background. How does that inform kind of how you think about the world? Well, it does tend to make you more rigorous is one. It tends to make you more informed about the technical subjects that are often the subject of conversation, especially nowadays that we're seeing, you know, ChatGPT and uh, these kinds of other uh, cool AI tools out there. Um, it is always disappointing when you see somebody who you respected as a cultural commentator, as a political commentator, and then when they start talking about technology and <laughs> they have just the most like, uh, you know, it just gives you like a gel man amnesia, but not for the news, but for specific intellectuals. Um, right, right. I guess <laughs> maybe we don't need to name names here, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, just awareness of how those kinds of things work. Another thing, I mean, if, if CS is really a study about how different layers of abstraction work, you learn about like how hardware works and how op- software built on top of that hardware works. And, you know, you go from the operating system to the programs built on top of it to the programs that use those programs. And so that ability to st- study multiple layers of abstraction that are all talking about the same thing, but at different levels of complexity actually comes in really handy when you're talking about society or culture or other kinds of more abstract topics. Wait, you think it's useful in thinking about societies? Uh, yeah, because, you know, I mean, listen, if you wanted to explain, I think this is a, I forgot which book this, um, this little like story comes from, but if you wanted to explain why is there a statue of Winston Churchill in the middle of some park in London, there's many ways you could explain it, right? You could tell a story about how, well, ever since the Big Bang, these atoms have been moving in this particular direction and eventually they interacted in a way that formed this statue in the middle of, you know, London. Um, you can also talk about it like the layer abstraction of like history. You can talk about the layer abstraction of why the politics and some the, the 1950s in London caused the statue to be directed. So there's many different ways in which you would explain why something happened. And an awareness that they're all accurate on, and inaccurate in different ways, it actually is like, it, it's helpful to have that perspective from computer science. Okay, I'll, I'll make the case that this kind of like algorithmic thinking is actually pretty bad. Maybe it's informed or like pretty bad for understanding society specifically or for generating explanations of society specifically. Go for it. And and I'll, I'll like point out that like this is particularly bad when it comes to like dissident right people, but it's I think I see it like pretty widely in politics in general. Is that like a lot of cultural functions are sort of like ambiguous and untraceable. Right? Like how mm. did we get, you know, like how how do we get wokeness? Right. Is, is there like kind of like some procedural explanation? It's kind of like in mathematics, there's a difference between a constructive and a non-constructive proof, right? A non-constructive mm-hmm. proof it just basically gives you like, it gives you like conditions. This is mainly for the audience. It gives you like a set of conditions, which if, uh, if, um, if violated must produce, say, a solution that you're looking for. And it doesn't give you the actual solution. It just says like a solution exists. It, and if it doesn't exist, then you're going to get some uh, flaw somewhere else on some of the assumptions that you had. Mm-hmm. Now, like a constructive solution is much more simple. It just gives you, it kind of like just gives you the answer, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of social phenomena, I think, do not have constructive explanations. And when you try to force them into constructive explanations, right, then you just get, you, you basically get like conspiracy theories. And a lot of them are like obviously wrong. Yeah, yeah. But, right. but, but so, then, so like, that's well, well, the reason why I don't like the, that's the reason why I don't like people trying to come up with constructive explanations for things, at least like most of them. Uh, but, but how do you? So, how, if I asked you, like, why is there wokeness? Like, what would you say to that? Would you sort of say like it's unknowable, or do you have like some explanation, even if it's kind of vague? 
Right, so you can say kind of like, when it comes to explanations, there's like, you know, it's either a descendant of uh, Protestantism or some version of Christianity. Uh, there's like the kind of um, class explanation, right? You have overproduced elites. You have too many, you have too many status climbers and not, if not, and not enough seats for them. Those are kind of non-constructive explanations. They're kind of vague, but to me, they're not obviously wrong. An explanation of a thing that's like obviously wrong is like James Lindsay's idea that basically like specifically the descendants of postmodernism, like you, you like, trace down, you know, from the postmodernist school and specifically the people who were like derived off of that, right, driving yeah, yeah. their work off of that, that that becomes, you know, that specifically becomes the reason why wokeness uh, is now so dominant. Like to me, that kind of lineage is just not very clear. The line that I make all the time is that, you know, I don't think it's right to blame Foucault uh, that your English department is acting like every third world country ever has acted. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I feel like this confirms, and maybe we're just playing semantics here, but I feel this confirms the sort of idea that, you know, there's many different layers of abstraction at which you can address this uh, phenomenon, and some of them are more accurate than others. And if you wanted to do a sort of like more parsimonious, you know, it, it's like trying to explain wokeness in terms of Foucault and that the lineage of people there is like trying to explain why you have this bug by looking at the bit flips in your RAM. Uh, whereas like the right layer of abstraction is much higher and you need to be looking at, you know, some like uh, loop in your Python code instead. Oh, I see. Okay. I see what you mean, right? So, so your point is that your point is that the, the idea that there are different layers of abstraction is, um, is, is the right procedure or is like the right way of thinking about this. Whereas like I interpret it as like the, the, like the algorithmic layer of abstraction is the right way to think about this. The latter. Yeah. Of which yeah. I think is wrong. Uh, Okay, yeah, no, I, 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 I certainly don't think like you can apply the same sort of methodology to debugging code and uh, figuring out why certain things are happening in society. Just that there's uh, there, there's kind of a transfer. And I mean, you notice this actually, you've had some of these people on your podcast. So, but you know, somebody like Curtis, right? Curtis is a computer programmer turned uh, yeah. dissident writist or whatever. Um, there's actually not a shortage of interesting people who, who are, you know, notable programmers who have become political philosophers or interesting intellectuals. I, th- that could be a coincidence, but I think, and obviously there's a correlation that doesn't imply causation, right? Like smart people are inclined to do programming and political thought, but um, yeah, I think there's something there. Yeah. Okay. Small pivot. What is the first thing you have done in your life that you consider impressive? So my family and I moved from India to us when I was eight and, uh, I don't know. It's, I don't know if it's hard, the right way to think about it as impressive, but I feel like I adjusted well to that kind of change. Uh, we moved to North Dakota or Canada before that, but then North Dakota and then West Virginia and we moved all over the place. Um, then to Maryland and then West Texas. And I feel like I handled that change pretty well. So it may be not impressive in some ways, but, uh, I'm glad that things worked out. Wait, how much time do you spend in West Virginia? <laughs> I spent three years in West Virginia, three years in North Dakota, um, and then three years in West Texas. Wait, so this would have been, okay. Or sorry, two years in West here, Texas. Eight years ago, or like up to eight years ago, right? Yeah, in, yeah. Uh, in, so you spent, um, so 2015 to 2018, you're in West Virginia, uh, no, 2012 to 2015, I was oh, in West Virginia. Oh, my bad, my bad, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and so, then... so 2012 to 2015, that wasn't quite the Trump moment, 
but it was still it was like the pre- predecessor to that right how, how yeah. did you find it there I, I think people are people exaggerate the differences between different places in the u.s at least that was, that was my experience back then where i don't know i feel like people are pretty similar everywhere people are generally nice especially americans you know um and friendly and so on and I honestly don't think there's like a big difference between the different places I've lived in. They've all just been from kind that of... description. It sounds pretty different from New York. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe there's like a big difference between uh, urban and rural, or maybe urban and suburban plus rural. But between the different, like if you go to a kind of like a hundred thousand person town in North Dakota versus West Virginia versus Maryland, I don't think you're going to find that much difference. Okay, interesting. So, so the reason why I ask the first thing you did that's impressive is is Tyler has this criteria for spotting for spotting mm. people that he eventually funds right which is like the earliest the earliest yeah. interesting thing um wait ha- have you ever we can cut this out if you want have you ever gotten uh ev funding virgin ventures funding? i have yes yes yeah okay <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah. okay so as i understand yeah, you have yeah. as well if right? you were to answer the same question right if, if on your ev application he mm. asked what was uh, what was the earliest impressive thing or earliest thing you've done that you consider impressive? What would your answer be? Yeah, I would probably say something a little more like I wouldn't just say like I adjusted well to a move. <laughs> I would try to make uh, make up some story about like something else I impressive I did. Honestly, though, I don't really remember. I don't have some memory cached in my brain right now of something impressive I was doing when I was like twelve or something. I mean, I was in, really into reading. I was really into writing stories and. But this is not something that, like, there's some legible accomplishment. I didn't win, like, the Google Science Fair or something. So, I mean, you know, maybe just, like, being early to being interested in ideas. But, you know, I don't know how you put that in an application without sounding a little uh, vague and braggadocious. Right, right. I don't know. I think that... What did you say? What would you say I mean, there's, like, the the resume answer, which is, like, um, competitive programming. I was... At the time, I was the youngest to... Uh, when I was in grade seven, I was the youngest to qualify for the national um, computer science competition. Oh, and nice. then same thing for for worlds. But yeah. like, I don't know that that seems so long ago now. But yeah, 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 that, yeah. that's definitely the thing that I would say. Um, it's almost like it happened to a different person, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, there, there's like more than there's more than one reason why I would say that for sure. But yeah, yeah. I think. When it comes to these kind of like, you know, Russ Roberts has the phrase like, uh, what is it? Wild problems, these kind of things that sh- that deeply change how you think about the world. It is, it, it does feel very strange kind of crossing because, because on one hand, the technical knowledge is still there, right? I can probably still, there, there used to be this kind of like mini game that a, fr- a few friends and I played where we would uh, write like a write like a link cut tree as quickly as possible, which is this kind of like notoriously annoying computer science algorithm. Uh, and you know we would do that, and we do we would like race it like a speed run, and we'd finish in like 10, 15 minutes. And yeah, like I can probably still do that, maybe not at that speed, but at the same time, the kind of philosophy that led me to kind of being like the absolute wanting to be like the absolute best at like theoretical computer science competitions like that mm-hmm. that kind of spirit to me seems very foreign yeah you know what i, I think um more than the accomplishments themselves i think there is something to the idea of what they reveal about you i do remember you know i was just like really motivated in almost like an annoying way when i was a kid 
to kind of accomplish things or to get recognition and oh you know just like thinking way too early about like how me joining boy scouts when i was like 12 might be relevant to like my college admissions or something you know um and honestly it was like probably a bad idea because these are not investments worth making when you're 12 it just like you know but uh I, i didn't know that at the time but regardless yeah just just that kind of like um yeah ambition the, the, those kinds of things i think do come about pretty early and uh, honestly that's not even necessarily a good trait to have to be like constantly you know <laughs> thinking when you're 12 about like your college admissions um but it, it is something that like you can see early right um so you said that wasn't a very good investment of your time what would have been a good investment of your time just learning a- in retrospect, it's like pretty obvious, right? Like learn programming, like go, go to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty like, you, what, what, what would you, why would you be inclined to think otherwise? Wait, wait, you, I, I just don't think it's obvious at all, but sorry, keep going with your answer yeah, and then yeah. I'll talk. Yeah. Well, just because the, the earlier you learn, the more time you have to master something and there's compounding returns where if you go into college already as a prodigy in programming instead of a novice, then, you know, your professors give you extra time. You get into these honor societies where, you the, you know, you get invited to do cool research stuff where you give, develop your skills even more and so on and so on. So there's like these compounding returns to getting started early. I think... um I think uh, Malcolm Gladwell had something like this in Outliers, right? Where the hockey players that were oldest in the school year, because they got added investment from their coaches, because they were just better because they were older, it would just like lead to them getting better and better over time to the point where they dominated the adult, um, the adult hockey leagues. So, yeah, I, I think just like getting started on that kind of stuff early would have been a good investment of time. Right. So, so one... Yeah, I, I guess I could have done that. I, I still... Hmm, yeah. Uh, something that's interesting to me is that you get like a kind of lock-in, right? Like mm. if, if I had a kind of lock-in, if I had like a continuous lock-in that wasn't basically disrupted by life catastrophe and I wasn't doing what I am now, I think my life would be like significantly worse. Right? So, <laughs> so that's why I'm kind of skeptical of, of you know, kind of like spending your entire life from from 14 doing computer science. I don't know. I'm yeah, also quite yeah. skeptical that like most computer scientists should actually be doing computer science like i just look at the talent pool that's going into ml and it's like come on do do none of you guys want to come with me and fix the federal bureaucracies yeah although i mean what are they going to do about the federal bureaucracies let them make ml tools (laughs) (laughs) what are they they supposed to do just waste the next 30 years of their life like climbing some hierarchy in the hope that maybe they'll someday they'll be useful no, no, Schedule F, man. Schedule F. Okay. What, <laughs> should, what is I actually, schedule? should I actually explain this or should I like... Go, go, go for it. What is Schedule F? Okay. Like people... Yeah. Um, some of the Schedule F people don't want me to talk about it at this point. But you know, you know, it's it's a relatively small podcast. It's fun. So, so like Schedule F and there are various plans around it is this plan to basically make many more federal bureaucracy employees replaceable. So like right now, many federal uh, government employees have job protections that mean they cannot be fired for almost any reason, including Mm. like failure to meet, you know, existing goals of the organization or even like active subversion of the policy goals of the administration. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so this is like, you know, on one side of the of the DC think tanks, you, like the moderates refer to it as the administrative state. You know, the the kind of more Trump aligned people refer to it as the deep state. Also of course, referring of course. to intelligence, while the first is not 
not usually encompassing intelligence, at least like, you know, the libertarians don't really worry too much about that. Uh Uh, And so like, it is very likely that there's going to be this just massive um, emergence of uh, bureaucracy positions for people who are basically, you know, like anywhere remotely right of center or like libertarian or really anything right? Anything that's not basically establishment liberalism or, you know, uh, more extreme versions of that. Mm-hmm. And that's just like a job opportunity. Like when I talk to people, like basically, you know, I talk to people who basically have like extreme or, or not extreme, but let's say like unpopular social positions, right? With regards to marriage, with regards to afor- uh, abortion, with regards to um, premarital sex, so on and so forth, Right. And they are people who are kind of like afraid to admit these positions in corporate America. I'm like, why are you guys taking the such a hard, unnecessary route? You guys can actually just go and do something interesting with your lives, directly solve, you know, the reason that you are not that you're not saying these things. That you know, in your view, and my view, as or like not in your view, as in you, uh, Dwarkash, but yeah. in your view, as in like the hypothetical person that I'm talking sure, to. Sure, sure. Or like not hypothetical, but like real people I'm talking to that aren't you, right? Yeah. Uh, and in my view as well, he's kind of like all of these social ills to like actually work on those things, actually, you know, engage in this kind of like social um, restructuring. And on, on one hand, there's kind of like a somewhat reasonable thing, which is like income, you do get paid less. Uh, but on the other, it's kind of just like, Fear of disagreeable, um, being disagreeable, right? But, but like, what fear specifically are they actually? But what's what, what specifically would they do if they were getting into government? Like, okay, you're now in the state department. Well, great. Like, now what? Right. So, like, just rewriting a lot of the like. You can you kind of have to understand that within it's kind of like a matryoshka, right? It's like this this nesting doll within every kind of department. There are like embedded. Um, basically edicts some some actual laws but mostly kind of like executive decisions or decisions by members of the kind of committees in those organizations that basically bias policy uh towards like an eternally uh eternally farther left and farther left conclusion the most obvious example of this is the kind of hr laws right the kind of affirmative action uh for both hiring for government contracts that exist that that is not really like there, there's kind of like the legal uh, mandate under I think one of the one of the Civil Rights Act, not the original one, um, eighty one something like that. Richard Hanania has an article about this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's the kind of like non legal versions, or the kind of like or like the non kind of law versions, which are basically just executive decisions to interpret things in certain ways. And this is like the version of it that gets kind of like maybe even too much press, right, as a kind of woke version where they're just, like, conditioning things that should definitely not be conditioned on race, uh, on race, just, like, absolutely sabotaging kind of basic merit qualifications, so on and so forth. Like, yeah, that's pretty bad. But there are also other kind of, like, unrelated terrible things. Uh, Some of it, you know, like, uh, some of it is the, the drug approval stuff, you know, just slowing down things, completely unnecessarily i don't know how uh favorable parts of the right will be to um to overturning that but you know like the teal verse exists there certainly are people who are allied towards making that less 
um, absurd. The the problem with like I can talk about this on and on, and it'll sound like oh you're just just mentioning like niche areas, but that kind of is what it is. Reddit is niche areas. It's just that there are like, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of niche areas that just need people to actually go and move things into basically like a non-retarded direction. Well, well are you, are you like, uh, are you like planning on doing this yourself or like, is this something yeah. you want other people to do? So, so there is like, yeah, a lot of it is, um, should I talk about this now? Yeah, I feel fine talking about this now. This is releasing in like three weeks from date of recording probably so i should have i should have the initial stuff out there i'm i'm working on basically uh coordinated ml policy uh machine learning policy so so yeah mm-hmm. like kind of related to both both areas of what we were just talking about yeah 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 i mean uh i mean i'm, I'm certainly not an expert in like how political power works or anything but i would guess that you probably want to be very specific you, you should it it's not the goal shouldn't just be like get in the federal bureaucracy somehow there's probably positions that matter uh like a thousand x more than other positions just because this guy is the bottleneck in this very important thing that is costing our economy billions of dollars or something like that and you want that guy's position right um and there's like more than a million federal there's like two million federal workers or something ridiculous like that right so yeah you want to make sure you're getting you're on the stepladder to the right position yeah, that those kind of like diminishing returns do exist. I'm just not sure if like spending a lot of time basically like career planning for that is better than just jumping in, right? Like it might be the case that just jumping in is actually a faster path than to like plan meticulously all of these things. I mean, how long does it take to plan? A couple of months? And how long is a career? Like six decades? So it would be, right, be really right. weird if, if that was a... the long, If you take the long scale of it, I think on, yeah, on aggregate planning might still be preferable. It's yeah. just that, you know, like most people are not even doing that, right? Like if, if they're planning, you know, I'm not, I'm already like not too worried well, about well, like, maybe, I mean, you could consider, like, if, if this is your philosophy, you should consider, like, making it an 80,000 hours for, you know, taking over the deep state. I'm not even joking. Like, <laughs> if, if you yeah, think this yeah, is, yeah, like, yeah, the yeah. fulcrum no, in which, no, like, before, tell people exactly the, all that. the machine learning stuff blew up. This was literally what I was going to do. Yeah, yeah. Like, tell people exactly, you know, the, this is the path to becoming an FDA administrator. This is the path to becoming, you know, blah, 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 the State Department. Uh, this is the path to becoming an ambassador um identify like what who who actually matters in the bureaucracy how do you get in those positions um yeah oh uh, this also kind of actually exists as well americanmoment.org this is like you know these guys are are i think like pretty explicitly right wing uh more definitely more right wing than i am but yeah this kind of already exists and like 90 95% of what they would do to the administrative state is positive so, like, you know, for all for all of you guys at home, this thing already sort of exists. This this is not run by me. I have no I have no uh, formal affiliation with the American moments, uh, although the people there are are very cool. Okay, um, to get back on track with the questions, uh, <laughs> we're talking about we're talking about prodigies, basically, right? Like, what what makes someone kind of want to do something at an early age, and what someone what makes someone want to be like basically ambitious in their uh, teens or early twenties or mid twenties. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you're you're asking. Okay, what what what? Um, right, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I. What observations have you have you found with that? I'm sure you found many of these people at this point. 
I think um, biographies are a really interesting perspective, a way to look at these kinds of things. I highly recommend, for instance, um, the biography that Robert Kiara wrote of Lyndon Johnson in volume yes, one. Is yeah, this is great. Um, I was just, I was literally You're... just reading this two hours ago in oh, preparation really? for another podcast guest. Yeah. Uh, which one? Which volume? Or are you on the first um, one? One. I was just starting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's really great. And, you know, so Caro has this explanation that Lyndon Johnson's ruthless ambition came from the fact that his father was made this really terrible decision that resulted in them being basically poor for the rest of his adulthood. And he went from being a really respected man in his community to becoming the laughingstock. Um, and so, you know, the, the ambition comes from that humiliation. And I do... In a lot of these biographies, you know, I think like Napoleon was also this case, right, where his parents were elites in Corsica until the French seized it again. And then they kind of became like he knew he was from an elite heritage, but then like his actual status in life was one of humiliation and getting made fun of and getting teased. Same with Lyndon Johnson, right? Like the Buntons that he descended from were the sort of patriarchs of their communities um, until they got wiped out. So Often, the, I don't know, I've, I've noticed like often it's the case that somebody comes from like an elite lineage that they feel, um, and, but they, they, they've lost it because there was some sort of revolution in their country or because their family made a bad mistake or something like that, where they have to start from scratch. So they don't have that sort of silver spoon, but they have that sort of um, noblesse oblige and that sort of entitlement that like, I, I'm, you know, like I'm of the lineage of great men and I don't have that in my life and I need to make it happen. Right, right. So do you see that with like modern day people? Do you see that with like Elon? I don't know what Elon's family background I, I, Yeah, is. I don't either. Like I know he's uh, like, you know, South uh, South African, but I don't know that much about his family, to be honest. Um, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th this kind of like biography case is sort of interesting. To me, like, this is something that I didn't notice um, for a very long time until someone pointed it out about me, is that a lot of people who do things at a young time have their own sort of like induction circles, right? They mm -hmm. kind of, they kind of filter, they kind of filter the people around them, not necessarily like consciously, but just sort of like, um, yeah, subconsciously or by, by their kind of social behavior to have basically like a friend group of people who are also quite interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. I think yes. that you, you, you talk about this yourself. Right. So I kind of want to talk about your experience doing this. I think you mentioned on some other podcast that you gained a lot of value from basically introducing interesting friends to each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is like a generally, um, I mean, I, I don't know how much like networking you're doing when you're 12, <laughs> but, uh, I, I don't know. Like, so but there's a different question of like, okay, what, once you are in a position to introduce people to themselves, like you're probably in your late teens or early twenties or something about that point. But by that point, your fundamental character is already shaped to like, uh, and so, yeah, I, I don't know if that helps out of that. Probably having ambitious friends is very important, but there's a lot of cases in history where it's not clear. Like, I don't know in the key Johnson's case, I don't, I didn't like, rem I don't remember reading about any like ambitious friends he had in high school or middle school or anything like that. Um, it's hard to tell in a lot of these cases. Like, I wonder that Wait, this is Johnson, so, so, so in Johnson's case, right, I actually just finished reading this part. He kind of like took over a lot of the social scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He, there's, there's something about this when he was in, uh, yeah, yeah. in college and also when he was doing, 
um, Logan when he Hurst. was that uh, was a staffer, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. So th- that I think is a that I think is a good point. Actually, just this early desire to like dominate social groups. Um, yeah, I think that actually is is probably the case. Uh, but it, this goes back to the thing we started off talking about about how many of these things are things you can determine versus how many of these things are stories do we make up afterwards. I don't know. I, I just have this fascination with you know great figures of history, and you're trying to explain why they are a certain way, why had they had the impact that they had. And I do wonder, is are there actually patterns throughout their lives? Because, I don't know, often when you read a biography, I don't know if you have this experience, but you're kind of thinking like, oh, he's, you know, in this way, he's like me or he's, and then, but I just wonder, are you just like mapping too heavily? Because you can sympathize with anybody if you read a hundred, a thousand pages about them. Right. Yeah, I don't. I typically, I, I map things onto people I know. I d- typically don't map things onto me. I don't know, like, I think I'm just motivated by very different things than, like, the average ambitious person. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't really relate to that part of it, to any part of it, really. But I can definitely see it reflected by those around me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah. It, so it's so weird you how find... much, like, it is weird how much weight we put on... Um... I don't know. I, I feel like this meme is spread about like we uh, we want people to be agentic and ambitious and so on. And uh, I, I think um, I'm, I'm glad that the meme is out there. But, you know, like that's that's like a, maybe a small fraction of what is required to be successful. Right. Like, I think there's something to be said about actually being so good. They can't ignore you. And the, I mean, the, if you just like there's so many ambitious people in the world. Right. Like that can't be the thing that differentiates you. And, you know, actually I was, (laughs) I was talking to somebody and they said, uh, you know, like, uh, you seem like you're an agentic person or whatever, but I don't know how good you are technically. And (laughs) I I think like that's the correct attitude, right? Like uh, almost in a sort of uh, dismissive way, the, like, it's like almost less than a prerequisite. It's like saying that having legs is a prerequisite to be a world-class runner, like sure, but it's almost... It's it's almost not even worth mentioning. Like the other things that are the things that really differentiate people. Is it though? Like I'm not sure if you know if you know the University of Waterloo. Do you know the University of Waterloo? No. Okay, so it's this it's this kind of like place. It's, I talked about it before with uh, I think Michael Gibson. It, it's almost a perfect litmus test for whether someone works in tech or not. If they work in tech, they tend to know because it just produces like an enormous amount of uh, software engineers. A lot of just enormous amount of technical talents flows here. And my the thing I always say about University of Waterloo, why I think it's the best place to recruit, except maybe MIT, who ha- which has the same property, is like if you go to Harvard and you recruit some like CS, and let's say you, you're recruiting like someone for like an ML engineering role, right? The average mm-hmm. kind of, or like in Waterloo you'll get two types of responses you'll get people who are actually competent and you'll get people who are like yeah no I can't do this I'm sorry uh and if you go to Harvard right you'll get you will get maybe even like a comparable or almost comparable number of competent people but the incompetent people will like spend so much time and actually have a fairly competent strategy for faking it and Mm -hmm. that to me is like the biggest detriment to like places like Harvard these kind of like legacy talent attractors is that there are just, there are just so many fakers and kind of like professional useless people that, that it just makes it, 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 it devalues like the relative share of people who are, or like it relatively devalues the share of people who are actually competent. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and but how much of that? I mean, this is like a side point. I, I, I'm actually curious how much of that is because of affirmative action and legacy, or because yeah, of like yeah, exactly, in, right, it's, exactly, it's intrinsic right, to Harvard's uh, recruiting process. Uh, it's, it's not just it's not just black people and Hispanics though. There, there are yeah, a lot yeah. of there are a lot of people who are not necessarily advantaged from affirmative action here like this. If, if you mean like, is this like related to the overall you know attacks on meritocracy? Like maybe, maybe I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Going back going back to Zoomer culture. Okay. Uh-huh. Man, I've been talking way too much in this first section. Okay. <laughs> what was the last what was the last song you listened to? Ooh, let me pull up my Spotify. Yes, this is great. Raindrops keep falling on my head by Engelbert Humperdink. It's like a Never pretty old heard song. Is this, let, uh, up, is when, this when was it released? Like, let me look it up. Song to you? No, it's not. I, I, I just like good melodies. That's why I really am a fan of um, Indian songs, like these Hollywood songs, because they, they just like, they're beautiful, you know, some of these melodies in these Indian songs. Um, okay, so this song was released 1969. Right, right. Yeah, I think okay. a lot and, of... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, a lot of older songs, they have... They have these like lines that maybe this is not the same thing that that you're talking about, but to me, a lot of older songs have these lines that kind of um, go off of the main the main melody, the main mm-hmm. kind of it's like it's like kind of like very very unpredictable, right? As opposed to it's as opposed to newer music, I think is much more. There's almost a sort of fear within the within the structure. To me, I think. Mm-hmm. This, this is of course mainstream stuff but what do you mean by fear like the, the, there's a fear it's almost like seoing it right seoing oh. the song there's a fear <laughs> that if you have like a thing that is basically if you have a pattern that's not like within the structure right if you just I insert see. like a random thing into the song Right, like there's a fear that that will kind of like tank the thing or something like that sure sure to sure. me there's a lot more kind of like and you'll have like weird songs, right? They just won't be so. Like maybe this is a kind of selection effect thing, right? Because you'll have weird songs, they just won't be like the most popular ones. Yeah. Um, so like maybe it's just like reveal preferences suck. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I haven't been keeping up that much with the new music these days. Uh, that does make sense, although. I mean, yeah, maybe we've just gotten so good at sort of filtering movies and songs at this point that we kind of know what works. And because we have this algorithm for basically creating this, you could make the argument that the Avengers movies are uh, SEOing basically movies, right? Like they know what will get the top hits. Exactly. And then they just make more of that. And now that we figured it out, like there's less room for experimentation. We're in the exploit phase of the explore exploit trade off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like the, the, like Adorno was right, basically. Right. But, but he was right. Not in that, like it, it deprives, you know, it deprives people of something greater that they can, they can kind of like ascend to. Right. But that, like, that's just actually people's revealed preferences. They don't want something great. They're not being deprived of anything. This is actually just what they want. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Uh, the part of me uh, believes that, but part of me also thinks. 
Well, one thing you shouldn't do is assume that everybody is like you. That, you know, because you have these sorts of preferences, I, you know, people often make this mistake in politics, it seems, where they, as professional commentators who went to elite universities, feel like they understand like what the average voter will think of some issue or some news that the average voter will probably not even hear about. Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe something similar is true with movies and music and stuff where I shouldn't assume I know like what will sell out. Hell, I don't even know what kind of podcast people will listen to. Right. And that's the thing I do. So yeah, maybe, maybe that is what just people want. But part of me is also believes that when you actually do make something great, it does tend to get attention. Like I was just watching no country for old men the other day. Um, it's such a good movie and I think it did pretty well. Right. Like, I don't know if it did uh, Avengers well, but some of these like classics actually end up becoming blockbusters. Wait, what year was 2007? 2007. Okay. Like that was, yeah, that was pre-internet. That was pre kind of like hyper optimization. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't think, I don't think the kind of movie economy is the same as 2007. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is kind of like, you know, it's pretty difficult to falsify at least in the short term. Right. Like maybe, you know, like whatever classics get released in the short term, like maybe they're just bad. Right. Or like classics, remakes, whatever. Right. But there, there are so many remakes. Right. Yeah, there's also that uh, idea of the globalization, uh, because now movie makers have the incentive to go after more audiences. They basically have to distill down themes and ideas to something that billions of people uh, could understand. And therefore, it's hard to make something unique or really um, nuanced and subtle. But to me, it's mostly the same as kind of American movies, right? Like it's not, you know, you're not getting very Chinese or Japanese themes in this movies. You know, maybe once again, that's just revealed preferences. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying it's something that a Chinese audience could understand. No, but like the, the ideas that would resonate, right? Like the kind of like superhero being like, dumb and the villain being like uh being like machiavellian and having like a grand strategy this is a very like western trope mm. right like this is something wait is this a trope in india as well that's actually an interesting question to ask right like mark Andreessen has this what, what observation do you mean by dumb that like the west okay so mark Andreessen has this observation yeah, yeah. that like the west is very um very much against basically like the the nietzschean superhero right mm. that like the nietzschean superhero is someone who has like kind of a uh, like a grand plan he's basically like the good guy but has a strategy and is willing to basically like exercise power in favor of the strategy sure, in sure. this kind of like master morality way yeah, yeah and the west does not have that kind of hero right if anything they try to portray it as a villain or at least a kind of like anti-hero right like you can kind of think of joker as this although he's not uh, exactly like the most competent person right but you can kind of think of uh of the joker as this right or at least as a kind of like attempt by the west to be like this but like it's always like a basically dumb hero versus honestly like a fairly smart and like complicated villain right ah no, that's that's really interesting i mean uh so i'm thinking a few indian actually so india has a sort of western morality i think too because if you think of like the mm. ramayana or the mahabharata the the protagonists are kind of really naive. They're, they're heroic in the sense that they're really noble and just and whatever, but they're also fundamentally naive and get tricked multiple times by the antagonist. Um, right. And they kind of, when they do get tricked, they go along with, let's say, like a bet they made whose like spirit was dishonored. 
even though they know that it happened because they were tricked, right? Um, right. So, yeah, there's like a meekness to it. That's actually kind of interesting. I'm trying to think, is there an example... Like, what is an example of, I know Andreessen gives Breaking Bad as an example of us trying to disguise a Machiavellian hero as, um, as a villain. Or, you know what, actually, Lyndon Johnson is a great example of this. Like, he is, according to Caro, at least, like, if you're a liberal, he's a hero. Um, but, like, Caro doesn't hide the fact that, in many ways, things he did were ruthless and despicable, and, like, he stole his first Senate election, and, um... Uh, yeah, so it, it, there are figures like this in history where if you even if you are like somebody of that persuasion, you will find the, the ways in which those things got done pretty despicable. But that's not the story. That's not like the mainstream story of Lyndon Johnson at all. Right. Like, that might be like the truth. Right. That might be like Johnson as like an actual figure and maybe some kind of like subset of elites am- admire that. Right. But that's not the image the public has of him. Not even yeah. close. I do wonder if it's a good thing, though. Like, isn't it? Do we want to live in a society where people think that the way to become successful is to become really jaded and really Machiavellian? Like, even if that's real, the reality of how a lot of things happen. Like, I don't know. It, it, isn't it good that we Not have this image of Not even Machiavellian, but just like stupid, right? Like, I'd be fine if you know, you know, like um, Captain America was still, you know, was still basically a deontologist, right? Like, I'm basically a deontologist. But, like, if Captain America was a deontologist that, like, planned things out ahead of time, right, that would already be a huge improvement. But he just doesn't. How about uh, about Tony Stark? That's the point that, that, like, Andreessen is making, right? That, like, all these tech founders are, like, that he knows, right? At least in his view, are fundamentally good people who plan things out of time and actually contribute stuff because they plan things out of time. Yeah, but how, like I feel like Batman and um, Iron Man—they're good examples of uh, the sort of smart, uh, self-made, um, you know, like protagonist. Yeah, Iron Man. Iron Man is particularly interesting here, right? Like that—that that was like, yeah, that—that that was a very interesting thing, especially you know, parallels to a certain in real life, uh, in in real life. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, I don't know, though, even then, right, like, I don't know, is the planning and the strategy the thing that is actually, like, demonstrated? Or is it more so just his kind of, like, technological breakthroughs? Which are good, right? Like, I'm pro-technological breakthrough. But, yeah, that kind of, like, grand strategy thing, it, it still seems to be, it still seems to be very stigmatized. Um, so, like, an example of this in, in, like, Eastern culture, have you ever, like, watched the show No Game, No Life? No. No? Okay, okay, unfortunate. Um, <laughs> I'll probably link that, I'll probably link that for the audience, although, yeah, the, the plot of the show is basically, um, so these, like, two obviously, like, Asperger's adopted siblings who have, like, the, the sister, I think, has, like, a photographic memory and and the brother is like very charismatic, but also like extremely intelligent. Um, they get teleported to this like magical world, where um, so so the world is ruled by the god of games, and the god of games says like everything in the world, all power in the world is decided by like basically bets against each other, and usually you bet on a game, and the game you're allowed to you're allowed to set out the rules ahead of time, and you're allowed to basically like try to bend around those rules as much as you can. 
And, and you can think of what ensues, right? And like, I don't want to spoil too much of the plot, right? But the siblings are quite successful, and they're basically successful by being like significantly smarter in kind of increasingly mm. comedically absurd ways than uh, than their various adversaries. Got it. Got it. Yeah, you know what? I, I, and something like that in the West, I just don't really see it. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really interesting. I mean, even the Death Note, right? Like the Kira yeah, yeah, is exactly, exactly. He's like much more intelligent, but then like that, the idea is he uses his intelligence to become a bad guy or convince himself he's a good guy while being a bad guy, right? He's like he's like clearly not the hero at the end of the story. Same with Breaking Bad. Um, right. I, I actually like the plot of Death Note, right? Because yeah. he doesn't lose because he's like. He doesn't lose because he's smarter, right? He loses, or like, despite being smarter, he loses because he becomes dumb. He uh, loses yes, because yes. he's kind of outwitted, right? So I right, actually right. really like that. Like the the, yeah. the kind of like actual protagonist, right? L is like yeah. also a very very smart guy, and actually, you know, like light light admits it at the end, right? Like light light is just like like the main character in this in in the series right. for the audience right he he just admits it he's like oh i've been I, i've been defeated right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, that, that's actually really interesting uh what about sherlock holmes i feel like that's a good example of somebody where like the good guy wins because he's smart not because he's like noble or um or stupid or anything mm, that that's pretty good um yeah that's a pretty good example, although it is kind of like reused IP, right? There was that Sherlock series that came out. I never watched it. I don't know. Is that is that something that got a lot of traction? Yeah, I think it was like pretty popular. The the Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched it. It was it was pretty good. Um, and yeah, he's like he wins because he's smarter, and he like outwits uh, Moriarty. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, he's like a complicated figure who has these flaws, but is fundamentally seen as a good guy, which is similar to that sort of idea that I guess like Andreessen is a fan of. Right. Um, but, yeah, no, that that is kind of interesting that. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out what would it look like? What is like the archetype of the kind of character that you're referring to here? Somebody who's like fundamentally a good guy and but wins because he is better, smarter. Uh, you know, he's like a master, whereas the other one is not. L is actually a pretty good example. Yeah. Right? Like from Death Note. Yeah. yeah. A lot of a lot of Japanese and Chinese shows have this. Um not the main protagonist, but like Tushan Rong Rong from uh from Fox Spirit Matchmaker is an example of this in uh Chinese media. Mm -hmm. right like in general like the good guys from fox spirit matchmaker are like the good guys and the bad guys are both smart right uh the, mm -hmm. the main the main character is kind of like comic relief but even even he has like a level of strategy that's much much deeper i think than than a lot of western shows um and but like what do you think is motivating the fact that our characters are you know, like dumb or meek or whatever. Is, is you, you think it's just like we have a, what, what, what explains it? Uh, I would say like, obviously it's, it's multi-causal, right? It's multifactorial, but I would say that it's, it is a lot of the kind of bureaucratic discourse norms in the West, right? Like the norm in the West, especially in kind of like media culture is basically to be like hyper deferential and feminized. And there are various, there are various studies around this as well. 
right? The kind of uh, number of interruptions, that kind of thing. There's no kind of like definite way of measuring it, but there certainly are a lot of correlates to kind of at least suggest this is happening empirically. And it hmm. is really kind of like the Nietzsche kind of slave morality thing, right? I don't know. People They're... are much more afraid of uh, of essentially competence. People are, are perceiving things in kind of like a spectrum of uh, of good versus bad. And there's a strong incentive of casting basically competence as bad, uh, as opposed to from an axis of like, or sorry, people are, are, are perceiving things in an axis of good versus evil, and there's an incentive to cast things as evil, as opposed to an as opposed to an axis of good versus bad, where bad is just like a worse performing version of good. I don't know. This sounds kind of like those James Lindsay explanations you're talking about earlier, or just like when when left people are like, oh, you know, they're portraying ba- uh, black people as bad because they're like, I don't know, they're like they're racist at heart. Something. It just sounds like a very more moralistic explanation that seems more about criticizing people like about being feminized rather than I don't, I don't feel like it actually explains what's going on like captain america i forgot it was civil war basically the plot of the movie was that he refused to abide by the united nations decree that he's not allowed to act without their consent um without like the global government consent right so in that case he's like a character who's very much of the mold of like disagreeableness and putting away the bureaucracy and then like choosing for himself what is good Right, I don't think it's absolute, right? Like that that's the kind of main point is that this is not like a total this is not like a total explanation, right? It is just a kind of correlate. So I don't think you're going to I don't think like this is like th- there can be no sort of you know, basic story like the storytelling features there are kind of universal, right? Like I'm not saying that, you know, this is a kind of like totalitarian plot where they're just going to stop any movies it's just like a kind of systematic bias it's just kind of like a bias of uh personality type and so on that at least reduces the frequency like that that's why i preface this with like this is not this is obviously multifactorial like i don't have like an amazing guess at this it is just like one of many options yeah yeah actually house of cards is another example of this by the way of the breaking bad mode of things where the 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 guy who's uh the like i mean kevin spacey is not the good guy there he doesn't really have any ideals that he's like fighting for, but he um, he is like just fundamentally extremely competent and so on. And yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, are there shows where like the Kevin Spacey character is the good guy and also he's that competent? Right? Is he is he considered the good guy? I'm not completely. No, he's not. Sure. Well, I mean, like, because okay, he, yeah, he just yeah. like he just considered like a sort of Machiavellian ruthless figure who's uh, going out for himself. I mean, he's a good guy. He's like the protagonist in the way that like Walter White is a protagonist, right? In the sense that like, you know, you're like fundamentally not supposed to be rooting for him, but psychologically you end up rooting for them because that's the way the, you know, he's the main character, right? Yeah, that's the way the medium works. Yeah. 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 I've never, I've never watched House of Cards. I've actually never watched Breaking Bad either, but I have listened to Richard Hananya and Rob Henderson review Breaking Bad. Yeah. I know Breaking Bad is really good. It's extremely good. Just uh, do you already know the spoilers? Because I I would highly recommend going in without knowing the spoilers. Yeah, I I know the spoilers. I have oh, this man. I have this habit of looking up all of the spoilers for all any show that I watch. Yeah. Just to like judge if it's an interesting plot line <laughs> going into the show. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. So so economic progress. Do you think there is a tie between economic and moral progress? Uh. I don't know. I would expect there to be one. Um, like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not convinced there is. 
I think like we've gotten lucky and well, okay, maybe the, maybe there's like some story you can tell about, well, if you have free speech and like an open society, generally those kinds of places end up becoming, you know, having um, those kinds of norms are necessary for both economic progress and for political progress. That might be Actually, true. Honestly, okay. So, so like a fun way to do this, a fun way to do this. This, this yeah. is a, this is a thing that I may reuse in future podcasts as well. Do you believe there is a tie between a moral and culture, moral and, and uh, economic progress? Uh, yes or no. Maybe. I actually don't know. Like, I, do, do you believe there is a tie? Or sorry, there, yeah, do you believe there is a tie between evolutionary psychology and, and moral progress or moral change, let's say? I don't even know what that question means. Like, what do you mean by evolutionary psychology in that context? Do you believe that um, the way we've evolved and whether our environment is suitable to the way we've evolved, oh, got it. if there is a tie between that and, and, and moral change? Uh, no, I don't, I don't see why there would be necessarily. Okay. And finally, do you see a tie between economic progress and the degree of evolutionary mismatch? Uh, I mean, it's like, it's, it's a really subtle question. I'm initially, I would say no, but like there's a subtle way in which it could be yes, because like, I guess if you're in disequilibrium, you have to come up with new stuff, and that new stuff is economic progress. Okay, this this is interesting. This is interesting because um, this has been pretty good at, at, at uh, this has been pretty good at getting contradictory results from IRL libertarians that I know. Uh huh. This has sense? been this has been quite fun, right? Like like the gimmick that happens here. The gimmick that happens here is that people say. You know, there's a tie, there's a positive tie between moral and cultural progress. There's a negative tie between evolution or like, uh, there, there's a uh, worse morality when there's evolutionary mismatch and the more economic progress there is, there's the more evolutionary mismatch there is, right? That's like, that, that's like a, a set of mainstream answers that is just completely contradictory on their face, right? Uh, and, and that's been the fun thing, but uh, yeah, I definitely do not always expect to get that. Um, although it is a good, it is a good place to, to kick off. Okay. So identifying talent, identifying talent. We've both talked to Tyler about this, right? He, he's written a book on it. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is one thing that you use to identify talent? Just in like people who, you know, that almost no one does. Almost no one does. I don't know if this is something almost no one does, but getting to know somebody and then just, and this is one of Tyler's tricks, but just like seeing how nuanced their thinking is on something they understand is a pretty good test of like, are they there basically? Um, you know, and have they engaged in some serious way with it, something even they're interested in? So that I think is, uh, one thing I found is like uh, unreliable is there's a lot of people who can, there's like a, I don't know what the right way to describe this, but there's a certain kind of person who's like a pseudo intellectual in the sense that, you know, they're like, Hey, I'm into like progress studies or tools for thought or whatever. And especially in like Silicon Valley. And then you're like, okay, but can you get a job done? Like, will you show up on time? Will you do the work? Can you do the boring work that's actually required to make a product or make something happen? And in many cases, they're not. So I, I don't think you can just rely on people being able to like speak intellectually or being interested in intellectual subjects. 
but if you're hiring somebody for like a technical role, is there like a technical subject in which they can have an intelligent conversation with you? And I guess that depends in part on your ability to have an intelligent conversation with them. But yeah, yeah. And I'm stealing that directly from Tyler, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> right. That's interesting. So, so there's nothing, I don't know. I guess you're still, I guess you're still quite young. Um, what do you think <laughs> of the, what do you think of the uh, founder effects? Right. This is something that I think is related to a lot of your writing, but it's not quite that. Which How do you is, mean? you know, like the first the the first YC cohort, the first Teal Fellowship cohort. Mm. There there seem to be a lot of um there seem to be a particularly interesting cohort of people who are attracted by every kind of like first version of something. Mm. Yeah, I think those uh... I think those examples do suggest that, right? Um, as for what is the explanation for it? Yeah, I'm afraid, to, I don't know. I, I only think of the obvious things, which is that, oh, if you're like kind of creative and like looking to do a new thing, um, you are going to be interested in those things where, and it's like more taboo than joining YC today, right? Um, yeah, I don't know if I have like a different explanation of that than kind of that sort of basic story. Right, right. So like something, the, the kind of path path down this one is basically like a corollary, to, a corollary to new things being good at finding talent is that old things decline at finding talent, right? Mm. Or even just things decline at ta- finding talent over time, right? Like the corollary to the founder effect of YC is that like YC has gotten worse at finding talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, like, maybe with that coral area, why do you think that is? There's an obvious story of the founder gets less involved, right? Like, a program is not involved day to day in YC. I doubt Peter Thiel is involved. I, I heard this story somewhere that, like, <laughs> the way Peter Thiel judges, like, his team finds the new Peter um, Thiel Fellowship recruits, and he just looks at <laughs> a list of pictures of them, and then he like says, mm-hmm, "That seems about right," or something like just like pure physiognomy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I don't know if that's true. I'm just, it's just something I heard. Um, yeah, but it's okay. So the, the, the person who's like initially in charge gets less involved. Things don't scale that well. So even if they are involved, they're not like personally that, you know, attuned to every single person who's applying and so on. Um, I mean, that's gotta be a big part of it, right? Yeah, I do think, yeah, the, the kind of founder effects that is also interesting, right? Like the original, the original, um, founder, I guess there's the nomenclature is getting a little uh, confusing here, right? But that also has um, that also has a significant impact on on the productivity of the business, right? Like Teal has this point that like he's the only person with the kind of authority to actually make those kind of uh, important pivot decisions, to make those kind of final decisions, um, to basically not have things go into basically like a, a kind of like bureaucratic discourse norm but that kind of like begs the question right if having that authority just in general right is better than no one having that authority what why isn't that just assigned at random to people right why isn't mm-hmm. that or like why isn't that just assigned to the ceo uh as in wh- why would people not take the ceo seriously if he did that or yeah, or why would he not have the kind of basically internal political capital to do the same thing as the founder? Well, one thing is that maybe the person who selected a CEO is not the same person, doesn't have the same kind of uh, 
credentials as somebody who's actually becomes a founder, like somebody who selected a CEO or somebody who like the consensus of the board can agree with. And is, I mean, by the point that there's a successful company, you basically need somebody who isn't going to rock the boat. If you've got like something like Google, where you have this sort of huge cash cow that's generating a hundred billion or 200 billion in pure profit every year, like the thing to do is just make sure you're not like destroying the magic and you're, you're not going to like look for some like Steve Jobs kind of figure, right? You just want somebody who's going to like make sure the product works well and things function smoothly. So instead of the the CEO losing his ability, it's just that you select somebody who would not ex- exercise that ability. And maybe that's the wise thing to do, right? Like if you have something successful, maybe that's the wise thing to do. If you were to make one change in the kind of pipeline that every college student goes through, or let's say like every young person goes through, uh, to try to connect more talent with the opportunities they could benefit from, what would that change be? I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of these kinds of things like scholarships or fellowships, and I don't know how many of them actually work. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I, Maybe uh, if I'm just like being like super things that don't scale arbitrary things, like I would just maybe have a reading list of thing, books that I really en- like enjoyed and like force them to read those. But I'm not sure how actually useful that would be. Like I think it would be more useful than many of the things these people are forced to do. Um I would just give them more free time. Like, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't like. There's there's so many scholarships, fellowships, things like that already. Like, are 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 there really obvious interventions that they're all missing? Hmm. Interesting. I mean, yeah. I didn't know how much I want to talk, but I would say that go ahead, not go only ahead. are I'm there interventions curious. that they're missing, but they're highly correlated. Um, well, like, what, what kinds of things I, are I've, wrote, I've written several articles about this. Right, midwit effects. Um, if you introduce enough midwits, it starts uh, it starts creating a system where um, being uh, being only slightly above average is enforced. There's kind of tall poppy syndrome internal to the institution, so on and so forth. I've, I've written about this in a lot longer form. Um, I'm not sure how much I want to spend on the podcast on this. I think I've already yeah. talked enough. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think what the one thing is like I would just give them more free time. I feel like a lot of the things that we force kids to do. It are just like busy work that can distract them if they are pursuing an interesting project and distract from them for them from that and if they aren't like all right whatever just like have some fun you know like <laughs> it's okay if you don't want to be the next steve jobs like at least like have some fun with your friends or something why are you forcing you to do all this busy work um so maybe just like give them more free time honestly right right so so you're you are, you're taking a computer science degree right yeah, I guess like that. That's a, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. that advice is like pretty heavily weighted towards them. But I feel like you, you can. Aren't there interesting projects for like every major? Like if you're a writer or like humanities person, like you could like be working on, I don't know, some blog or something. Or is that like just too heavily weighted towards like computer sciencey things? So I think it's comp- it's weighted towards computer scientists. But the reason why it's weighted towards computer scientists is that most other college students have lots of free time. <laughs> <laughs> like I think computer you're right. science students especially right yeah. there are other students who are also you know math students uh chem students biology students who also kind of have less time but out of all of them i think the people with the least time yeah, yeah, yeah. Who i know are computer science students. no i think that's fair i mean i would like hear about like all my friends who have like Oh, no, no, no. But actually, the pre-med majors, I feel they have a lot of busy work because that's part of the weed, weeding process for med school is like how much busy work can you handle? Um, that's yeah, that's up the there too. 
Like, I think you have a bio major or chemistry major or something. I think that's also a lot of busy work. Right. There's something here that I'm just, hmm. There's something here in kind of like the scheduling of of the Gen Z life that I'm trying to get at. I think you have yeah. interesting answers on, but I don't think I can quite, go for it. Go for it. I can quite hit it. Like mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what they have to do to get into college or is there something else you're referring to? Right. Right. Yeah. I think that there's a kind of like a puzzle that I, that I noticed very recently or not very recently, sorry, uh, a puzzle that I noticed like very early on in like before I was really thinking about human psychology is that like a lot of people are like averse to basically like copy pasting sections of code. And this is, and like not for style reasons, they'll say like, they'll write like two very similar um, blocks of code. I'll say like, why did you not just like copy and edit that? They'll say I was lazy. And this is a nonsensical explanation because I would like, I would like sit in front of them. I would show that like I would copy paste the code. I would edit it. And and I would say like, look, this took so much less time. You clearly are not lazy. And this person would just be like, I don't know. Uh, But I think it is a kind of like, I think what happens is there's a kind of like subconscious behavior pattern, right? They're not really there when they're retyping the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, quote unquote, easier that Ooh. way, even though it takes much more time and effort. I think. Yep, 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 yep. I, I, I can totally sympathize with this because when I'm prepping for my interviews, there's certain things I do which are really hard, but lead to way more interesting questions per hour of doing that activity. Um, and I don't think I've like gotten that many interesting questions at all from like listening to people on other podcasts. Like maybe we should just stop doing that. Uh, but yeah, like reading really? their work or reading work that they have recommended or something like that, that actually leads to a ton of interesting questions, but it's harder than just like going on a walk and listening to them, like blabber on their talking points on some other podcast. Right. So then like, you think you're being productive by listening to them on other podcasts when that, you know, you should be doing something uh, like a little more intense. Hmm, maybe what makes this podcast great is I just don't believe people. Right. I'll, I'll hear questions. I'll, I'll hear them answer. And I'll think, Man, that sounds like total bullshit. How do I ask questions in a way that like circumvents that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like that's like the secret to this podcast. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, but like how, yeah, how that's do you I, ask questions that they've circumvented, right? Like cuz you know they're going to give a similar answer. Right, right. So you need to lead into it, right? You need to do a you need to do a setup, right? I do this with libertarians a lot. Right, where you, you kind of saw the experiment earlier on, right? Obviously, it didn't work on you, but these kind of like there, there are sort of like path dependencies and lead-ins, right? Where where if you give the specific context of a certain thing, people will think of it in a way that either deviates or or more like deeply exposes their kind of actual motives or their actual beliefs. I think that that kind of path dependency is important. People mm-hmm. don't pay enough attention to like what paths they close off by saying certain things. Yes. Yes, yes. I, I do wonder, like, are there people who are masters of this, of, like, getting people caught in these sorts of traps of, I'm, I'm sure that there's, like, reporters who do a good job of this, but I, I don't know, like, are, are maybe, are, are they alive today? Of Yeah, just leading somebody down a path where they know, but again, like, maybe that's not the, with a podcast, you're not, like, trying to get somebody, you're, like, trying to get something interesting out of them. So if you're just, like, revealing something about them that everybody knew, but they haven't admitted publicly, um, that's different than, I guess, if you're releasing something about their ideas, that's important, right? So maybe, maybe the fair enough on that. Yeah, like I don't try to gotcha people, right? Like I don't think, at least I haven't heard from any of my guests who say like, "Oh, you you got me to reveal something that I really didn't want to." 
right? It's just that they, they do have to kind of face their internal contradictions, but I think in like a productive way, yeah. right? I think in a way that they actually enjoy. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so like speaking of speaking of podcasting, that's another section that I have here, right? Yeah, you mentioned going and reading their reading their recommended work. I think a lot of were like, is it still ahead of the podcast meta to do that? Like, do you know this? But, but, but what do you mean by meta? Like what most podcasters do. Right? Yeah, most of course. Podcasters. No, I mean like really? the, most podcasters are at least either lazy, boring, or stupid. Uh, you're, luck- <laughs> you're, you're lucky. That's they're only, you're, you're only. You're lucky. On. They're only one of those things. Uh, the, the most popular ones are two, and the like. The top ones are at least like three. You know, so um, <laughs> once you have that combination, it's like so easy to beat the competition. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, <laughs> yeah. that is that is my favorite quote so far for sure. Okay, so yeah, like so. But then, no, there's like this thing in the Lyndon Johnson bios where he's like teaching these group of um, uh, like later on in that first uh, volume, he's teaching this group of Mexican students. And he tells them, if you do everything, and I mean everything, you will win. And I think there's something about that where you should really take that to heart. That, you know, if you like, if you read things that they are shocked that you bother to look up and read, there's, you know, often it'll just a waste of time, but sometimes you come up with really interesting questions. Um, or even like things you should, like uh, I had Bethany McLean on, um, and she is, I've been my opinion, the best finance nonfiction writer out there. And, but she's written like these six books, many, like many of them whom are like more than a thousand pages each. And so, you know, like most people who are interview her, how many of them have actually read all her books, uh, gone through whatever, like 3000 pages or 4000 pages or whatever of her content? Um, like very few, right? So if you do all of that, um, is, is this kind of thing where most interviewers are probably like digging five foot deep? And if you're the one who actually like bothers to dig 10 foot deep, you're going to be the first one to do it. Um yeah, I don't know. Hmm, that's that's really interesting. Maybe I maybe I kind of had an understanding of the podcast meta where I expected people to be much more competent, much more willing no, to do no. those things. No, I mean, because think about it. Who beca- who starts a podcast? Like, <laughs> there people have nothing better to do, right? Like, eventually, you're probably going to stop your podcast. I'm going to stop my podcast. But once we have, like, actually things that are worth doing that are better than podcasting, right? So, like, the person who are the smartest people in the world, they're, like, doing things, right? Like, they're not talking about them. They're certainly not doing, like, Joe Rogan-style three-hour meandering conversations. Um, or at least, like, they won't do them forever. So, you're, you're, you're competing against um, not the best and the brightest. I don't know. I just really enjoy this. Like, yeah, no, I, I, I do too. I'm just saying, eventually, like, once you, you know, form a coup against the federal government or whatever, will you have time for podcasting? We don't, we don't call it a coup. Never, yes, yes. never call it a coup. <laughs> um, but I feel like the answer is actually yes. Right? I feel like the answer, like, I, I think this podcast should continue to exist and should, like, continue to be, like, people from increasingly wild areas maybe you're you're not too too far outside of the kind of frame of this show right but i do want to like i kind of like said sarcastically that i want to have like the genshin impact gnosticism girl on but like i'm also kind of serious about that right i think there are these things that you learn i think that like the primary purpose of podcasts really the primary purpose of humanities 
right now in the current moment is sort of just to expose all of the ways that you live in an illegitimate order. And those things are not necessarily kind of like all too cognitive, right? Like when, if you're thinking of like the alternative, sure. If you're going to be building that and you should talk about that on your podcast every once in a while. Right. But I think that a lot of the ways that people kind of like find out about this stuff is just by asking like very simple questions, right? Like there was a reason why my first podcast guest was like Robin Hansen and we spent most of the time talking about the elephant in the brain. Yeah. Right. Like there's a reason why like all of these areas sort of converge into like one meta space on the internet where you have like the same, you know, like Matt Iglesias was at EADC and he was like, you know, it's going to be very hard to explain this to my grandchildren why all of the people and why this conference where everyone wants to talk to me about machine learning is serving only vegan food. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like all of these kind of things, all these things sort of aggregate. So, so to me, like creating those links, right. Getting all of like the people who kind of subtly understand whether it's through, you know, these kind of Gnostic, style video games or through like their ordinary life or through like there there are like so many kind of like independent red pills that you kind of need to put together yeah yeah although i just like in general like my opinion on the sort of like exposing the illegitimacy of the system i do feel like you first have to give the system its due before you're going to criticize it i mean it is amazing the fact that you can just like walk out in the street and there's skyscrapers and there's you know like pe- people pick up trash like oh, maybe, yeah, capital maybe, is great capital is wonderful yeah but then there's like other like okay but the like you know i'm a libertarian too so i agree but i'm not a libertarian but capital is still pretty great (laughs) yeah yeah sorry i I don't know like even in san francisco i walk outside and yes there's a lot of hobos and yes that's like caused by certain predictably bad policies but like the fact that you know like there's just like entire world of technology created by the city and that there's all these kinds of cool things happening i can go eat some ramen right now if i wanted to at this place that has these expert chefs or whatever and uh i can do that you know right now it, it like, seems like a trivial kind of thing, or you can walk by these skyscrapers that were built. I, I don't even know how you built something like that. Um, and I guess we haven't built one in a while, but uh, you had to give a system its due, I feel. Right, right, right. I should, I should be more specific here. I don't know. Like, I was wondering whether I should use the word regime here. But like this isn't the vibe of this specific podcast, you know. It's the vibe of like certain other podcasts on the go for it, go for it podcast, right? But yeah, yeah, I I do mean the regime here. I don't mean the system in general. I'm fine with you know ninety percent or like I don't know eighty percent of how the system works. Yeah, like most people are kind of like fundamentally good people, I think. Right. And and most people are kind of like fundamentally able to do like their one job, right? Like when it comes to like the you had one job thing, most people actually do it. Right. It it is just, you know, and I say just, like that's not this is not a small thing, right? It's just you know, I say that again. Right. It's it's that basically you have a lot of situations where not only are certain institutions incentivized not to do the right thing, but to actively like or not to like fulfill its promise but to actively worsen the thing it's promised to do right mm-hmm. so let me ask you something you like talk to curtis right um i've considered yeah. having him on but um he's like, yeah no I, I will and he's like a very interesting person to talk to but he is he's extremely loquacious <laughs> and so yeah. what, what, what would you do when you needed to interrupt him because like he would just go uh, on, like, he would just give you, like, a 15 I don't know if this is your experience, but, like, I've heard him on other podcasts. And he'll give, like, a very interesting, like, 15-minute monologue. But, like, if you're the host and you have a specific question, you might feel the need to interrupt. Well, what would you do in those cases? 
So, well, first of all, I should say, like, it's a non-trivial thing to determine whether you should do that. Because some yeah. of his long monologues are really good. Like, he yeah, had yeah. one here. I think he's talked about the Manhattan Project before. But there's this very nice clip of him talking about, like, the Manhattan Project as if it were run today. Mm-hmm. Right? Which which you may have seen doing the rounds. Like, that that was great. That kind of associated section was great. Um, in general, like, this is a more pro-monologue pro podcast than most podcasts. But with him, I don't know, you can listen back to that podcast, and I did as well. I just didn't have as much of a problem there. No, uh, like, I, I think, like, a lot of the time... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there were a few monologues, right? There, there was the one in the beginning where he talked about the hobbits and the elves. Like, like that, that was, like, the scoop of the podcast was, like, him talking about that, basically. I think, like, his article and my podcast released on the same day, right? So he was talking about it before he had written his article about it as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, there were times when I cut him off. But there were also times where he monologued, and I think those monologues were just good. You know, I, he's like extremely fun to listen to monologue. But I guess on my podcast, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I'm not just like repeating content that they've said on other podcasts, or I'm like trying to ask them about that content rather than having them regurgitate it. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just like I'm trying to figure out like could I do that in a way that is not extremely disrespectful because. If I, I'm just like constantly interrupting him every few seconds, or and but also isn't like him just giving his talking points on my podcast, however entertaining they might be. Right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've I've had other people ask me about this because I do think it was like a relatively like friendly and on track podcast. Yeah. I don't really know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll be honest here. I don't really. Yeah, I don't really know. I think like it was pretty clear from the start that I understood his philosophy fairly well and that my audience would have a pretty good job. Like there have been people who've kind of like referred us to each other as well before. So I don't, I think that like, yeah, I I don't know how you kind of develop that or like, like you can, you can understand his philosophy and that not be clear from the questions that you ask him. Right. So I don't know. I don't know exactly why that was clear from the questions I asked him. But yeah, I, I don't really know too much how to explain it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Actually, this might be interesting, especially given the first, you know, 30 minutes of the podcast. When do you decide to ask personal questions to, to the guest, to your guest? I usually don't. Um, because actually, like every time I ask a personal question, just like the episodes I've done where they're more personal rather than about their ideas or their work. They've just been my worst episodes, maybe not in terms of popularity, but in terms of like my assessment of how interesting the episode was. Um, in fact, the two most personal episodes I like, if I could without offending the person I interviewed, I would like take them down. Um, and yeah, so I honestly, I just feel like that, that kind of content is just kind of boring because who cares? Like I've always hated the kind of conversations where, you know, like somebody comes on and is like, tell me about your childhood or something. It's like, you know, like, who cares? Like, why would the, I don't care, like, how growing up in the Midwest uh, shaped you. I don't know why, like, the audience would care. Maybe the audience cares, but, like, I don't. Um, and I just, like, like jumping straight into their ideas. Hmm. Isn't that a little bit contradictory with a discussion of Robert Caro earlier, though? 
Oh, but with, I, I, uh, with the biography of LBJ? Like, if I interviewed Robert Caro, I, I don't know how much I would ask him about him personally. I would ask him about, like, he studied Lyndon Johnson. So if we're, like, discussing Johnson, we're discussing the person. Um, I, okay, but maybe you mean, like, in terms of, like, if the personal details aren't interesting, why are you interested in uh, Lyndon Johnson's personal Yeah, yeah, details? like, I thought, I don't know, to, to me, right, like, my perspective is that there's, like, a good and bad way to do it. Yeah. And, like you can do it in a bad way for sure, right? I, I'm not sure if like the beginning of this podcast felt like bad. Or, no, 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 no. I, I was right? referring to that. But yeah, yeah. Don't worry, don't worry. Yeah, like you know, there there was this conversation actually between uh, between Curtis and another friend or another you know friend of the show, let's say uh, Michael Anton, right? And they were talking about how uh, on another podcast, a lot of viewers were like, "Oh, why do you two hate each other?" And so Curtis went on to, on to describing this thing, which I think he refers to some other blog that talks about, uh, I think like orthotypic and heterotypic conversations. Yeah, no, I've right? heard of this, Basically, yeah. the first one is like the conversation of the swarm, where it's like, you know, basically trying to agree, trying to agree with each other, not offend each other. Um, basically, like, you know, the, the kind of conversation you have in a bureaucracy, whereas, um, whereas the, the latter is like, the conversation that's typical of say like infamously the Chicago school of economics, where you're like very, very confident in just like getting up to exactly what you actually disagree on and resolving it almost in a kind of taunting pressuring way mm-hmm. of, of really proving that you are not doing the first type of conversation, proving that you're like willing to go after, uh, go after, um, those fundamental disagreements. And like, if, if you said, you know, like your, your kind of like uh, biographical interview in the first 30 minutes just like absolutely sucked. It was kind of miserable to try to kind of think up and uh, think of these answers. I would like, I would take that to heart as a positive. So don't worry either way. Don't worry either way. <laughs> um, so like, wait, just to, just to actually get things clear. What do you think were the most personal podcasts? Because maybe I don't think, I yeah, haven't not, listened to all of your episodes. I'm not going to say, because I, I just, to two I, that I, I, thought were I did just mention personal. that they were, I did just mention that they were my worst episodes, so I'm not going to say which they were at the, at the risk of like, um, I don't want to feel anybody, I don't want to make it like a person who like uh, took the time to be on the podcast feel bad about their appearance, um, hmm, if it somehow gets back to them. Um, yeah, so so the episodes I've listened to, I've listened to um, your first one with Tyler Cowan. Yeah. I've listened to uh, Sam Oberia, Richard Nanya, and... Uh, Steve Shu mm-hmm. and uh, one very recent one, uh, Nadia Nadia Asparova. Yeah, none and of them. I thought I thought there were a few. There were some very interesting personal questions about Steve Shu and his time with Feynman, and I thought those were excellent. Right? Yeah, you know what? So that's maybe, mostly what I'm referring to. Okay, maybe maybe it's just like <laughs> I'm not interested in the personal details of uninteresting. I'm not interested in people's uninteresting personal details, which is like kind of a tautology. So yeah, maybe, maybe I just uh, maybe I actually do agree with you here. Um, uh, or I, I guess I I think there should be a smaller fraction of interviews than they tend to be, especially when they're interviews of intellectuals um, and of like scientists or something, and not celebrities, like it can be an interesting component of the interview, but when it's like primarily about their backgrounds or something, it can get kind of boring. And um, yeah. Yeah. I think people just have like a pretty poor understanding of idea mining. Yeah. I think like, yeah, like the thing I do on this podcast, right. is basically to, you know, try to stress some of the contradictions that I see in, in, in people try to take them to like the boundaries of their, 
different ideas. And I think that has been pretty good so far, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are hits and there are misses, right? But when it hits, it hits like very hard. Um, I think like most people, they see that kind of like biography as their kind of way of idea mining, right? Of their kind of way of going out of the path, except it's kind of meta already. So it's mostly unproductive. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's an instinct learned from interviews of, I don't know, celebrities or if you're like a famous CEO or something, the thing to ask, you're like, what else is there to ask you about, right? Like if you do an interview of a tennis star, the thing to ask them about is their life. Like there's really nothing else to talk about. Whereas if you're interviewing an intellectual, you know, you can ask about their ideas. Like there's actually something to talk about. And uh, but if you're applying this sort of model that you've gotten from watching like the interviews of the rock to interviewing Tyler Cowen and uh, I'm not talking about you specifically. I'm talking about like other interviews I've seen of him or something. Um, and yeah. And that, th- that just like disappointing. Cause like, it, it's not, you can just like ask about his interesting stuff. Like you don't have to like dredge up like what growing up in New Jersey was like. Yeah. I don't know. Like, did you listen to, did you listen to my interview with Tyler? I didn't. I listened to a part of it, but I didn't know the whole thing, yeah. Oh, okay, interesting. (laughs) Wait, which part? I think the beginning. um... Okay, okay, so not the the clip. Not, okay, okay. This is fine, this is fine. (laughs) Did did you talk about growing up in New Jersey? No, no, no. So Uh what happened with, I think it's like very clear what happened with Tyler, right? Is that he had two hours. I had like six hours of prep. And then spent most of the conversation not talking about anything in the prep. Uh huh. We spent, I think, like an hour and like twenty minutes, something like that, talking about populism, which I think is it, which is I think is like an important topic. And like in hindsight, and from like the the stuff that other people other people said to me was like a good conversation was a good topic to actually get Tyler kind of like you know registered and talking about on. But uh, at the same time. You know, like that, I don't know. I, I just thought like it was maybe good strategy and poor execution in terms of what I should do because I thought the questions were a bit circular and I didn't get to really nail down anything kind of extra specific. Mm. So that was my kind of like regret from that episode. But a lot of people said it was good. So yeah, yeah. I, I have a few episodes like there where people have told me it's good and I just like personally didn't think it was as good as it could have been or something. Um, right, right, right. What do you what do you see as kind of the main areas of contrast in episodes that other people think are good and you think are bad? I think it's honestly people who um, like I, I don't know how to put this, but basically it's it's just like when I don't really trust their judgment. Like it was the kind of person who is like you know I really enjoy uh, Lex Friedman's podcast or something, and also enjoy your interview of this person. That is often the kind of person who will like enjoy an episode that I thought was kind of bad because I've, often I, the reason I think it's bad is because it's done in the style of other other kind of uh, a podcast that do less prep or something. Um, so maybe just like somebody who has bad taste. But again, it's kind of circular to say like I think they're wrong when they have bad taste. <laughs> hmm, that, that's. That seems like a cop out, though. Like that's not an. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. Difference. I mean, I, I don't know if okay, there's like so, anything so more general. Is there than like that. a kind of like substantive difference where you think your judgment is just very different from people who you would trust? It's just like if you listen carefully, how much did they actually say? And maybe you weren't listening that carefully. Um, but usually, I feel like um, I have a great audience, so I feel like people will 
the people in my audience actually, if I look at the views, the listens on my audio numbers per episode, and I think like how good was this episode, it actually correlates pretty well for the most part um, with like how good the episode was. Really? Okay. I, I not, 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 not on YouTube, but on like audio listens, it does. Which I, maybe says like something mm-hmm. about my uh, audio listeners, maybe, <laughs> which is like, uh, something complimentary about them. Yeah, I, I've I've had n- not that experience at all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, once you refine your audience, right? Like the people who are left are people who share your taste. What do you mean? What do you mean refine your audience? This is actually interesting. How, what what kind of objectives? What kind of traits do you try to cultivate in an audience? No, no, you don't like do it consciously, but just like you cultivate the kind of audience that enjoys the kind of content you produce, right? And as you like produce more and more content, you'll find those kinds of people. And so they they're going to share a similar sense of taste with you. Hmm, that, that's that's quite interesting. I have not Hmm. I don't think there's actually that much similarity either between myself and my audience or even between different people from my audience. Maybe that's kind of a problem, right? Like I kind of have a split audience. I joke that it's 33% libertarians, 33% uh, you know, centrist, center-left technocrats and 33% uh, new right people. But maybe it's like maybe that's pretty significant weakness, I don't know. In what sense is it a weakness? And that, like, it's just not very optimized, right? It would just be better if I just had, like, three podcasts or something. Oh, um, but I don't know. I, know, I don't to... really... Sorry, go on. No, it's good to have cater to, like, different audiences. I just mean in terms of, like, fundamentally, do they... Though they probably agree with you in terms of, like, what podcasts... What episodes are interesting, what aren't. No, like, empirically, they don't. <laughs> Fair like, enough. The most listened to podcast is Tyler, and it's not close. Um, yeah, well, that yeah, might yeah. be because he's famous, right? Yeah, you gotta but like uh, then, you gotta normalize for the guest. Um, the guest, uh, yeah. Even normalizing for guest popularity, I still don't yeah. think that this is true. Um, I, I still don't think, or for my podcast at least, I still don't think it's true that my audience lines up with how well I thought the podcast went. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Who knows? I think like I try to achieve something very specific with a podcast. Like the thing that I most enjoy is kind of like metaphorically dragging my guest out to the frontier and like really like digging for some stuff. Right. Whereas a lot of the time, I think like some of the more, you know, like there's like the iceberg meme, right. Where the stuff on the top is like the most popular and and you get increasingly obscure at the bottom. I kind of want to get to the bottom layer when maybe, you know, staying at like the third or fourth layer might be, might be better for the general audience. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. Um, yeah, because like most people are listening to podcasts while they're like driving or something, right? So like, even I'm listening to podcasts when I'm driving, and you're at a different level of engagement if you are the host than if you are the listener. Um, Not even and, that; it's just that most people haven't done that much in-depth research. Sure, yeah, yeah. Right? Like no, you talk exactly. about stuff. Yeah, you talk about getting the guest to say stuff that hasn't been said on other podcasts, but like most, of, yeah, yeah. I, I would expect some of your audience just hasn't listened to the other podcasts, right? So that's fine for them. No, no, no. Yeah, no, totally. I agree. I agree. And that's sense, Okay. You know what? That probably is it then, right? Like if the person is less familiar with my guests than I am, they can find, they can think like, I guess the episode was good when in fact, I know that they just said a lot of things they've said elsewhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. So but, is that something that like frustrates you, right? If you're, if a guest comes on and basically says, says stuff that's, pretty close to what they say usually oh yeah absolutely absolutely huh 
Yeah. Cause like, well then what was the point of this conversation? Like you might as well just have listened to some other podcast. I mean, that's one way of thinking about it, but another way, I don't know. I usually have sections where I kind of like get what I expect out of the way or get them to like basically pre-register some takes and then like smash them together. Right. Like I'll, I'll like say, I'll ask questions knowing what they'll say from like, and I'll pull from like two different podcasts. They'll be like, did you just contradict yourself there? And that's usually like the start of a lot of interesting stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, but then you can just like say it. So, there, you know, that, that can take like 10 minutes out of the conversation. But you could just say like, listen, you, you've previously expressed sympathy with blah, blah, blah. But what do you think about this other thing you've said? Or like, what do you think about this? And you can just kind of get it out of the way in the preface of your question, rather than have wasting 10 minutes, like getting them to regurgitate their take again. No, no, I, I just completely disagree with you here, right? This is what I, I mean by like the path dependency. People just feel like much more shame when they've kind of like pre-registered it than as opposed to if you just mention it, right? Like factually, it's the same thing. But if they pre-register it, they'll feel like a sense to kind of defender to actually like face that contradiction whereas just say like oh that's not really what i meant right but if it's not what they meant like that's 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 a fine answer like if it would then just tell me what you meant <laughs> I, I i'm like i don't i don't object to somebody saying that um I, yeah. I think you're kind of viewing people as like very rational and i view people as like mostly irrational even very smart people like that's the thing right I think people kind of like just compile their intuitions in a semi-arbitrary way. And that like a lot of these things are really path dependent. Maybe this is just like a kind of, um, kind of like axiomatic or like not quite axiomatic, but kind of like observational disagreement I have with you. Yeah. And also I think like we have, we have probably different kinds of conversations. Like mine aren't, uh, like talking about, uh, sort of like political topics usually. Um, so in that way, there's like, it's like less about like your principles here or don't align with your principles there or something. Um, right, right. Yeah. Speaking of political topics. Uh, so I'm not sure if you've read this post by Parisia, uh, right-wing rationalism. No, I haven't. Okay. So, so the premise of this, that this is actually completely fine. I wasn't expecting you to, to have read <laughs> it, but um, so, so the principle of, of this uh, of this post is that there just needs to be like a version of rationalism or EA that is just more there's just more right wing and by right wing he mostly means like believing in evolutionary psychology and like libertarian or like at least pro market. Yeah, although isn't that already? <laughs> I mean, like, um, it, it, isn't that already uh, like a big chunk of rationality in EA? What do you mean? The, the like pro libertarian stuff like uh, I feel like that's, that's no they're so left wing it's like they're like painfully left. I I thought this right like I thought this from basically like because the people who introduced me to EA were more libertarian right it was like Robin Hanson right but the actual like members of EA Tyler Cowen actually talks about this I also have a few articles about this right where it's basically like the mass, like the most people in EA are basically drawn from like pools of like college educated coastal people. Yeah, right? yeah. No, I agree with that. And in large part, you know, those people are just, you know, like the base of the Democratic Party. And in, in many ways, their kind of politics actually reflect that. Like there is a favorability of prediction markets, but like, I don't think like most people have 
or like most people are just like willing to have the cognitive dissonance of being like pro prediction market and anti market, which is like something that's like really shocking to me. But I think it's also reflective of like the actual EAs that I've met. Well, yeah, but so I think that it is true that if you just like go up to like a random college EA club or something, you're going to find like a lot of <laughs> super lefty, like socialist types or whatever. But in my experience, it's not just with EA, but just like with any movement, the people who are in charge of it are far more right wing than its actual members. Um, and yeah, if you like talk to the actual people who are like heads of the movement or something or in charge of its important institutions, you would be uh, pleasantly surprised with how right wing they are in many cases. Uh, who do you mean? I'm not going to say. <laughs> I'm not going to out them. Uh, but... Are these people possibly um, under arrest at the current moment? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, he, <laughs> he, he actually is probably, just to be honest, but like uh, he's not the person I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Is, like, yeah. is this person, um, okay, okay, I, I won't. I, yeah, yeah. If you, don't <laughs> want, if you really don't want to answer this, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. But I would just encourage, like, I don't know. I think, like, not to kind of, like, you shouldn't insult people if you don't actually mean it, right? If it's, like, not actually true or if you don't actually, like, you, you shouldn't, like, play those things up. But in my opinion, you shouldn't play them down either, right? Like, I've gone on other podcasts and done this stuff but if, if you don't want to that's fine that's fine. well it's not an insult to say you're right wing else. yeah yeah like i don't know like i personally do not like it when people characterize me like i had this discussion with like richard nania right uh i i personally don't like it when people characterize basically like believing in just like biologically true things as right wing like that to me just like gives up so much Right? Like, that is already such a losing position to characterize, like, genetics as, like, right wing. It's like, if you just cl- characterize, like, climate science as, like, left wing. Like, this is my response to to um, Eve's post, right? To Parisia's post, is, like, you shouldn't, if you are willing to say, like, if you are, like, comparing, like, the left wing and you're saying, like, the right wing principles are like just believing that genetics is true like you need to basically recognize you're living in like a very extreme propaganda regime right like if if the platform of the democratic party was just like vaccines actually reduce hospitalizations and like the correlation there's correlation between like the concentration of co2 in the atmosphere and the environment or like and um in the average global temperature Right. If that was the left wing platform, just trying to get people to admit these kind of like basic statistical facts. Right. As opposed to, you know, like the stuff currently around genetics or group differences. Right. Where the right wing is on the back foot. Right. Then we would clearly say like this would be a much more extreme world where the propaganda apparatus is pointed in a very different direction. But like this is my problem with the kind of right wing rationalists. Right. You're kind of fighting for stuff that you shouldn't have to fight for. And at the same time, you're not recognizing like the root cause of that. You're not recognizing, you're, you're kind of like, it, it's like, um, it's uh, Arnold Kling's model of like naive realism, right? There's this idea of like how the world should work. And then you kind of like back up into a, into an understanding of it that is like not actually how it works. And then you just kind of like never correct for that. But, but like fundamentally, like why does it matter if there's like right wing rationalist or not? Like if if you think like the movement doesn't uh, think seriously about um, 
you know, I, I guess like we're just like talking. I just don't here. think it should be called whatever, right, whatever. Right. Just call it what you want. But like, uh, like, why does it matter? You know, <laughs> like, why, why does it matter if they like acknowledge group differences or not? What do you mean? Like, like it, it matters in the same way that like everything else matters, right? Like you're, you're just wasting money. If you acknowledge group differences, you just realize that many of these programs are just, just like clearly wasting money. Is that true right. though? Like, I mean, okay, so maybe like you think like malaria nets are wasted if the if like eventually they're Wait, not going to turn South Korea because like that's no, a no, no, thing no, for no. EA. Oh, this isn't like an EA thing, right? Or okay, I think I, I just like, like then, 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 kind of then you're talking about programs. I assume that's what we must be referring to. No, I just mean like affirmative action. Yeah, but like, is is that a big rationalist thing to support affirmative action? Yeah, yeah, I don't mean this in the like the rationalist context, right? Okay, so, like, there are two questions here, right? One is, like, the question of, like, right-wing rationalism and should be considered right-wing. And two is, like, what is the consequences of, like, accepting, like, quote-unquote right-wing rationalism, right? I just interpret those as not the same question. In terms of, like, EA, right, in terms of EA, while, like, just not doing stupid things to the most respected members of EA, I think that is one one obvious uh, consequence, but also just the kind of like broader broader discourse norms I think are worsened by the inclusion of basically, you know, pretty much ideologically delusional people. But anyways, like that was not sorry, that this I don't think is a particularly useful tangent. The the, the point of the the point of the kind of uh right wing EA or the right wing rationalist question is like do you think that there ha hmm. The point of the question is, like, do you think that there is, like, a direction to um, basically elite political change, right? Do you think that there's a direction in terms of, like, rationalism that actually goes towards things that are correct or that basically, you know, succumbs to demographics in the same way that everything else succumbs to demographics? Do you think that such a thing is possible? I, yeah, actually, I, I do think, in, like, in general, I'm suspicious. Like, any community of, like, any intellectual community is going to degrade. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just, like, in general, like, separate from, like, left or right wing, it's just, like, not going to be as good in the future as more people join it. Uh, and how much is correlated with, like, general social trends? I would say, like, pretty correlated. Like, I'm guessing, like, whatever, you know, if, like, a bunch of college kids are joining... I think it was probably, I mean, I don't know, maybe it wasn't a mistake, but the amount of sort of community input that things like uh, EA encouraged was probably a little more than, you know, like with the, if you encourage community input, you're going to get your community's thoughts and maybe they're they're not your thoughts, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, you know, they're, they're probably pretty correlated. But then again, like if, if like society is supposed to have a sort of huge leftward tilt and this is supposed to have gone on for hundreds of uh, years, like, you know, we're not all communist yet, right? So like how powerful can this force be? Uh, and I do think there's like a strong current that is going in the opposite direction now where there's a counter revolution in some sense. Uh, especially among like people who are you know smart and interesting and contrarian that like is encouraging right um so you wrote a very interesting article the effective altruist work ethic in the spirit of utilitarianism yeah 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 so what is what is the idea of the effective altruist work ethic 
I, honestly, I, like, I, <laughs> I'm not sure how much like I believe it now, but the idea at the time was, listen, if you think about, if you look, read um, uh, uh, the Protestant work ethic, it's basically making the point that the capitalist is working harder than is justified by the pleasure he gets out of the capital. Like you're not working 14 hours a day if you're already so rich to feed your 10th descendant. Uh, you're not working 14 hours, uh, like 18 hour days just for the um, just for the more capital. You're working because of the recognition, the domination, the respect that gets you. And it, one way to get that respect is uh, if like your capital is if you accumulating more capital is tied to some really altruistic purpose. If like you earning an extra dollar is linked to saving one twentieth of a life or one two hundredth of a life. So, yeah, the, the idea was like it really affords some sort of release valve to highly ambitious, motivated people uh, and gives them sort of sort of like altruistic justification for their activities, which in the end might be like pro-social. But, um, it, it, you know, like, it, yeah, it, it's like a story you can tell yourself about, like, why you're working for what you're working for. So you said you, you said that this you don't think that this really aged well. Um, I thought it aged pretty well. So, so why don't you think it, it aged well? Uh, yeah, it might have aged fine. Like I, I just, uh, hmm, what do I think here? Or like, why'd you say you don't really believe it anymore or you might not believe anymore? You know what? I take it back. Cause I, I think one of the things I mentioned in the blog post was that like it fundamentally in every society, there are people who are just like really interested in achieving things in making something of themselves. And these people need to tell us of a story of like why they want to do those things. But it's like fundamentally the story is like, it's in your nature. Right. Um, and I think like probably something like effective altruism attracts a lot of them. And I guess you can see that in the case of Sam Bagman Freed, but I don't honestly, I, I, at the time, and I still don't mean that in a sort of derogatory sense, I think it's like good to give outlets to people who have this sort of urge to be recognized. But, um, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's like, as long as they don't commit fraud in order to get that done. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they're like buying malaria nets along the way, like good for them. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you, if you think of it as like, you would have brought or you would have committed fraud anyway, but at least he bought some malaria nets um that's or, or kind of even that like right yeah or i mean I, I, yeah i don't know how much like you're gonna ascribe that to I, you know like in, so i think it's like really good that our society um like if there's somebody like a Napole- napoleonic figure in our society the way you attain the kind of status like a young napoleon today would not be by becoming a general and ha- having hundreds of thousands of men killed it would be by like trying to start a company or something like that or in the worst case trying to become a politician right um so I, I, I do think uh, in that in that sense, the, you know, like giving some sort of uh, our society does give better outlets to those kinds of spirits. Yeah, I think if it's like ambition plus talent, that's true. What do you think happens to people with ambition plus no talent in society? <laughs> I think wouldn't like society just beat the ambition out of you? Like you keep just failing again and again. Like at some point, wouldn't you really like stop being that ambitious? To a lot of people who have ambition but not talent. What do you think in, happens in the West? There are a lot of areas where you know this actually goes back a little bit to the Lyndon Johnson biography, right? Of like DC staffers, 
of all people who are basically ambitious, but they're not like directed. And maybe they get, you know, maybe they run into someone like Lyndon and, and he directs them. Right. But in general, like, I do think a lot of people in DC, I mean, like I have not met that many people in DC, like compared to some of my guests, but I think there are a lot of kind of attractors of people who basically just, you know, slave away and don't particularly Uh, accomplish anything productive and honestly, like in many cases, accomplish the opposite of something productive. I, I heard this sort of story, like, or the saying that Stripe's basically hiring model is getting people who are really talented, but who never like start a company of their own or are not, you know, ambitious enough to start a company of their own, which is, I guess, the opposite failure mode, right? Of being talented but not ambitious. Yeah, yeah that's like talent. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As for, you know, it is kind of a tragic story, right? Like if you have that kind of a burning ambition where like nothing in your life except the greatest goal will make you satisfied, but you just lack, you just lack the competence to, you know, lurch for it. it that is kind of a little, it, it is kind of tragic to have that kind of personality. It's like being a pedophile or something, right? Like you just can't exercise your huh? deepest fundamental desire. Okay, that that would not be a comparison, I would think. <laughs> but um, yeah, as much as I dislike strivers, I do think they're better than pedophiles. Yeah, um, yeah. But I don't know, is it tragic or is it... I don't know, like, once again, it's it's tragic if you think people are kind of rational animals, right? But if, if you think, like, coming to terms to that, right? Going back to stories, maybe, I don't think there's really a story of people who like can't really fit in and just like it's very against the kind of current regime ideology but i think it is also against human nature in a way uh the idea of someone just like coming to terms with the people around them and playing that kind of fundamentally defensive game that's something that i'm very interested in right like i'm gonna have a guest on that's in season four who i think has done the best modern writing on that on that kind of more defensive mindset as opposed to one of basically like, you know, you have to continually push yourself to achieve that ambition. I don't know. This is an interesting difference. Um, Oh man, this is something that I, that I had and didn't want to write down, but I, or like, sorry, not, I did want to write down, but I just didn't. I also wanted to spend a whole section on kind of Indian diaspora, Chinese diaspora, cultural differences, but uh, yeah, let's let's just finish off with EA for today. Maybe they'll be a round two, or maybe they'll be a uh, a part two to this. Sure, okay. sure. So in this article, in this article, you mentioned the idea of thymus. Uh, what is the idea of thymus for the audience? Yeah, so thymus, I think it comes from Plato, but the way I was familiarized with the term was from Fukuyama's End of History. It's a really, really interesting book, by the way, for people who haven't checked it out. But yeah, it's an excellent is, book. Yeah, thymus is like this sort of a burning desire to be recognized, to dominate. If you think about the great figures of history, the Napoleons, the Lyndon Johnsons, the um, even somebody like Steve Jobs, right? And the, the question that Fukuyama asked in the book, actually, it's, it's a really interesting book. It's a very subtle because the first half or the first three quarters of it is basically him defending his thesis. And the last quarter is him basically, I don't know, contradicting his own thesis or like giving his misgivings about it, where he says the reason that democracy might not work 
is because it really doesn't give an outlet for these people who are these thymotic individuals who need to be recognized. And what outlet do they have in our modern society? He has this interesting line that, you know, we try to emulate these great figures of history who had to struggle, who had to conquer, who who were like basically the masters, right? In the sort of Nietzschean sense of, you know, they they had the bravery and courage and ability to conquer. And that that's what made them better than the slaves, at least in that sort of mentality of thinking about it. Um and yeah, so what happens to this this kind of person? Because democratic out, politics is not an outlet for them, right? Because like, you know, if somebody has that <laughs> has that sort of master morality, are they going to go out there and say things like, "I want to serve you, the people. Uh, you are my true masters," or something? It, it, you know, maybe be, becoming like a great businessman. Maybe back in the days of Rockefeller, it might have been. But today, are they going to be building like a SaaS app? Uh, it, he has a line in there where he says. You know, today we compare people, lawyers who do mergers for big companies as gunslingers and these executives as these cowboys or something. But he says there was a time on Earth when real gunslingers and warriors and cowboys roamed the Earth and they would feel just contempt for the kinds of individuals who we give those labels to today. And so it's kind of an open question of what do we do with these kind of people, these Napoleons, because they're going to arise in society. They're going to have this urge to dominate and is their is their system basically vulnerable to people like that right right and there's i mean fukuyama and like hojave who he bases this off of right. gives two versions of this right he gives uh megalothymia which is the kind of version that you described yeah yeah and isothymia which is this kind of maybe weaker version of having enough dignity to to be recognized as an equal even if not necessarily a kind of great man yeah yeah right no, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, th- th- thanks for making that distinction. I miss that, yeah. Right. It, it, yeah, no worries, no worries. And what's particularly interesting in this, right, is that it kind of assumes that the... Maybe you also do this as well, actually. It kind of assumes that the the megalothymia is always direct, right? That it's not, like, subverted and hidden in, it, within the kind of cloak of isothymia, in which I think it often is. Ooh, interesting, Right. Like, like you said, like someone would not do that. Right. Someone would not go in front of people and say, like, you're the people and secretly be like very happily, you know, like conquering the political machine. But I think people would totally do that. Right. Like like Lyndon B. Johnson. Right. right. Bill Clinton. Right. I think yep, that yep, there yep. are actually plenty of examples of that. Yes. No, that, that, that's a good point. Um, I guess I mean, in the sense that like, even if they do conquer it, like fundamentally, the job is one that is not going to sue the megalothymia, oh, pronounce the mis- uh, excuse the mispronunciation. We're not going to satisfy a person like that because like fundamentally the job does involve mm. like a lot of conciliation, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of like dealing with different interests and kind of trying to pacify them and getting compromises through and things like that. And, you know, it, it is not the territory of the Alexander the Greats, right? Hmm. That's, that's pretty interesting. I think what it does is it doesn't satisfy it doesn't satisfy a kind of like male autism desire to build something great. Right? If you just want to be like famous, if you want to have like the sensation of power, I think it definitely satisfies that. That's kind of one of my takeaways from yeah. not the LBJ biography, but the FDR one. Actually one that I think Curtis has recommended somewhere. Uh yeah, I think there's kind of like two types 
of versions of this. And maybe you only mean one, the kind of like Elon or the kind of Napoleon, which I think is closer to that, of like achieving something through sort of through sort of like bottom up construction, right? Like proof by going back to like proof by construction. Yeah. It's really like kind of um, like Nietzsche has this idea of like a genius who carries an idea to term, right? He kind of brings it into kind of fleshes it out and brings it into reality. Um, Right. I think actually Elon is a great example of like a modern example of somebody who is, exactly of this temperament like he, he you, exactly, know, you, yeah. you don't have to go back in history to find these kinds of figures like elon is a modern representation of that of the mentality right right yeah would elon be satisfied with being president i don't know i think he would you know he would be in schedule f gang you know and and that would be a pretty interesting thing to do you know but um, actually maybe that's the answer to the question right because like we were asking earlier what would a person like that do today and we have Elon, right? Like he would, he would like would do something productive for society. Apparently, <laughs> which right? Is, exactly, exactly. Yeah. If you, you at home listening, are the next Napoleon, okay? We want you in Schedule F, gang. AmericanMoment.org. Okay, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I need to once again, you know, to be fair to my or to be clear to my uh, American Moment friends, I am not, I am not involved with that organization. Not now, at least, at all. Um, so so this is not this is not an official you know i am not speaking on behalf of them i am not you know i'm not um a surrogate or a representative or being paid to do this at all unfortunately i I, Uh, I am not nor have i ever been a member of the communist party of america or of any associated communist (laughs) friend (laughs) but I don't know. From my outside judgment, I, I think they would want you. Okay. <laughs> um, anyways, anyways. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. I, I do think that this... So, do you think that effective altruism is something that satisfies... So, Or, like, you do think, or, like, you used to think that effective altruism is something that does a very good job of satisfying this, right? I, I don't know. I feel like it actually did, like, I mean, like SBF was this kind of figure, I feel like. Um, and it was, it did seem to satisfy him, right? Like, I, I feel like he was a sort of like Elon-like figure. Uh, and again, I'm not like putting some sort of moralism to it. Like, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing to want to be a Napoleon or a bad thing. Like Napoleon himself, like got a lot of people killed, right? So, um, uh, but I, I feel like he was such a figure and he was satisfied with the effect of altruism. I do wonder... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Sorry for giving such a vague SPF answer. But... as more of a builder or more of a kind of convincer, right, or persuader. But like Napoleon wasn't a builder, you know. Like I, we don't want to like necessarily put mm, uh, sort of like uh, you know like modern SV connotation to this sort of like ancient personality. I don't know. I, I do think like a tactician is much closer to a builder. Like that's testing something of objective reality, right? Military strategy is like a real thing. Yeah, well, but I don't think I was like motivated to build things. I think it's like him and Elon, their uh, basic motivation was um, glory. And so just I'm just thinking as people who have like are motivated by glory. And, you know, maybe in a different time, glory was achieved by, you know, winning battles. And in today's time, maybe it's achieved by making great inventions or building great companies. But I, I'm talking more about their motivations rather than what they actually end up doing on earth 
Wait, but I do think there's a quite a distinction between persuaders and either like I do think there's actually a very strong distinction between people who want to be basically objectively test tested by reality and people who want to basically stay in the realm of persuasion right like Elon uh, Napoleon they might be great motivators but in the end they want to be tested by like something that's real and tangible so, but, right? but, but, whereas I'm not sure the same is true for SPF. Yeah, yeah but I, I feel like this is a sort of like different axis. Or actually, I, I, I think like SPF wanted to be tested on like who was he trying to persuade? He actually was trying to build a, a good company, um, or good, I, maybe not good in the sense of like <laughs> ethical good, but he actually was trying to build a company, right? Uh, so in that sense, like I, I, I don't know, I wouldn't call him a builder. Like I do not see anything particularly. Technical, like I'm, I was someone like you know that meme that's like, or like not that meme, but like that viral tweet of someone saying like, oh, I read up on all of this like technical blockchain stuff before going to a blockchain conference, and like no one had knew anything about it, right? That was kind of my like experience with crypto, and to me at least, like SBF did not like look like he implemented really anything all that interesting with FTX, right? Like, it seemed like much more of a kind of, like, almost celebrity kind of, like, marketing operation than it did a kind of, like, innovation operation, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't know too much about the internals of, like, what F, uh, what new things FTX did or didn't do, but um, I, I think we're, like, talking about different things here. Like, I, I would say Lyndon Johnson was also the personality I'm talking about, like, mega, uh, mega th- uh, thymotic, um, even though he was a persuader fundamentally, right? Like his genius was legislative power, which is just convincing 535 people to agree with you. Uh, he wasn't like a builder, but I, he, I would put him in the category of like the thing I'm talking about with Napoleon and um, uh, Musk. Yeah. So. Right, right. I, I think like, yeah, you mentioned it was a different axis here. I think that it actually, it is a different axis. I agree with you, but I think it's almost like, an equally important, if not important axis, if not more important axis of basically people who want to, basically people who want implicit competition versus people who want explicit competition. And once again, this is based on other stuff that I've written. So maybe I don't want to dive too much on it today, but yeah, I'll just kind of pre-register that and move on to use the remaining time, uh, remaining time that we have. So you talk about adverse selection, which I think is very interesting. Um, so you think that in general, or like, yeah, this is kind of difficult because I'm not sure what you what you still agree with and what you don't, right? But you think in general, EA kind of induces people who have the kind of right kind of psychological profile, right? What do you mean, right? Or like, okay, so so... Yeah, so I I just noted this down uh, incentive alignments. Um, yeah, so I think oh, so I what, know, I, what I'm I meant, remembering it right. Yeah, well, sorry. Well, yeah, what I, what I meant there was um, if uh, it, it can be a way of like aligning people's incentives. I think actually Caroline Ellison wrote a blog post where she basically said this um, that she likes to hire EAs because there's some sort of like alignment in like what they're trying to do. I mean, if you actually take them at their word, which I don't think you like necessarily should, it's like if fundamentally what you're doing is like you're only doing this because you want to help the world or something like you're going to be donating your paycheck to, uh, what, uh, you know, the World Malaria Foundation anyways. So and but if your company is going to be doing that with their profits, like 
in some sense, your company's profits are equivalent to you of your own salary. Uh, I don't think anybody takes it that seriously, but uh, you know, people can get close to that on the spectrum, right? So we're not close, but fundamentally, it's like uh, if you if you're if you're an effective altruist and your company's an effective altruist organization, then you know that like you adding to the bottom line of the company is going to translate to like more lives saved or something, in like the ideal case. And in that way, it's like yeah, it's like a strong way of. I mean, you notice this in many different cases where organizations tend to have some sort of uniting ideology. You could say in a way that wokeness is a way for, given how diverse Silicon Valley is, it's actually the one way to create a uniting ideology that can help organizations function. Um, and like effective altruism could be another one such. Uh, it seems that to have been so in FTX and Alameda's case. Yeah, I don't think, you know... I don't think most of Silicon Valley is woke. Like this, I think this is mostly a misconception. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, like most years, I don't like. I don't think it's. I think it's much more divisive than it is uniting. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, like most so people EA, don't care about it, but like let's focus on the main point here. EA as a kind of uniting ideology. Maybe I don't know. Like how did how united is FDX, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think? Yeah, like. Uh, I I am pretty involved with some people who I know who are, uh, or like some EA stuff with people who I know. Um, I really don't think like, as opposed to a random software engineer, does like hiring a bunch of EAs align the incentives for your company? I really don't think so. I really do think that there is a kind of like, you know, certainly many EAs are talented. They are some portion, but it is kind of like the same problem I see with Harvard, where a lot of EAs, I think, are too kind of like, they reach for too much stuff that's not there, right? And I think especially the kind of, do I want to do this? You you know, I had Rocco on last week. This is nowhere near as spicy as anything that he said. Uh, I, I do think that a lot of, um, I, I do think that a lot of the animal welfare people are like really like negatively aligned with the rest of EA and kind of like almost transparently so. Like it's literally the the Nassim Taleb meme, right? Of of a, a small kind of vegan faction uh, getting the entire organization to be vegan. Like this is not not a hypothetical anymore, right? In one sense, do you think they're like, I mean, and obviously in the obvious sense that like they have a limited amount of money and they had to give it to multiple charities. Is that what you're referring to or something else? Yeah, in general, I think the idea of expanding the moral circle is actually contrary to the idea of rationality, right? Like if you if you just consider like the, like there's a kind of theoretical way in it in which it doesn't, right? Where the elements of your moral circle are basically the same thing as like, you know, like Boolean valuable, variables in a computer, like, you can do this with an AI model, and maybe that doesn't interfere with it, right? But on the human level, I think, like, the moral the, like the moral circle, the size of your moral circle is pretty directly proportional to, like, the set of people you are, you're irrational about, right? And sometimes that's fine. Like, if you're irrational uh, with your wife, or, like, irrational when you're thinking about your wife, like, that's, that's totally fine. But if you're, like, running a charity whose, like, explicit premise is, like, that you're going to allocate money most effectively... And then you're actively simultaneously advocating for like the absorption of more people into the bucket of people who you think about irrationally. 
that seems like a pretty blatant contradiction to me. It's not clear to me why you're being irrational by like including somebody in your moral circle. Just like empirically, right? Like people, like it, this is why I say like in an ideal world, right? With like a computer, maybe this is not the case. But most people, when they're pressed to basically like make decisions about people who they feel like a moral connection to, they think of it much more irrationally. Um, but I feel like you're playing a semantic trick here where that's not necessarily included in the definition of moral circle. It'd be a bit like saying, listen, if you be, yeah, like, I, I, like, are, are you saying you're, I feel like you're evading the, like the actual like substance of the argument about like, are, should animals be included as moral agents or not? And kind of, I don't know, playing like a, <laughs> a semantic trick here. Like, uh, I guess there's like a debate there about like, are animals conscious? And if so, what should we do about it? Um, and like, are, are you saying that EA shouldn't have that debate or it's like irrational to have that debate? I think it's like, that's like a separate debate. I still think they shouldn't be included. Right. But the, the point is like, this is kind of like a sub debate of that, where if they are included, then it actually deranges the ability of EA to make judgments on a wider scale. How so? How specifically that, has it led to like their ability? Like like how... that, that's a sub claim that's, that's related, but not decisive in terms of whether they should be included. Right. Okay. So, what what specifically has the bad consequences been of uh, them including animals in their in their calculus? Just like poorly, just poorly allocating, um, just poorly allocating resources in general. Like, right? and, like and what, like what's on, is there on the sense of like? Sorry, is there something specific you're referring to? I think in in one way, the stuff that you mentioned at the beginning of just like a finite amount of funding is correct. But on like a broader sense of these kind of like basically social games where people try to figure out more, more concerning versions of animal welfare, like, you know, like the shrimp post. Like that to me is an extremely unproductive social game. Um, okay, but like you had to judge it by its results and not by what some weirdo wrote on some forum, right? Like on the, I, I don't know how many like chicken lives EA has probably saved, um, but it's like not an insubstantial amount. And uh, EA in general, like just the anti-malaria stuff that EA specifically has done is like I think saved more than a hundred thousand lives or something. Right, it's like, and probably anti-malaria stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. But like even the animal welfare stuff, it's like saved a significant amount. It's prevented a significant amount of animal suffering. Um, I, I don't have the exact numbers with me, but you know, like, I feel like that's a better judge of how well the movement and that particular part of the movement has done than like what some weirdo says on an open forum. Um, right, right. There, there are kind of two, there are kind of two questions here, right? This is why I say it's a kind of like sub argument, right? Like the broader argument, the broader argument is that like the animal welfare people should not, or like that it's just a mistake to include, to like arbitrarily expand your moral circle. Um, the, the kind of sub argument here is like, what are the costs of that within the EA movement itself, right? There's this kind of like, once again, this kind of like context switching uh, that's happening here that makes it difficult to kind of like resolve this argument in a straight line. Like the, the broader argument is just that like, the, the broader argument is also that this should not be a major concern, especially relative to the other EA concerns. Of course, you have to weigh both sides of the scale. They're not just kind of like the deleterious effects on the rest of EA, but that's like a broader discussion that I'm not sure we have that much time for. Yeah. Now I also wonder, like, are you, are you, are you concerned that like you really want EA to be saving more uh, lives in like sub-Saharan Africa and you're like concerned that they're spending money on uh, animal welfare instead? Like, is that your concern? That isn't part of it. 
the more serious concern I have is just kind of like the degradation of kind of epistemic quality, right? I think in the last basically few years, um, the Boston stuff especially, right? But in general, the degradation of just like the ability to not even like think rationally in terms of kind of like the more complicated stuff, the kind of like quantitative, um, quantitative modeling, but really just like have basic emotional detachment from the things you're dealing with and, and like in Sri Mauschewitz's words, try to solve the problem at all. Right. I just love that quote. Um, but, but I feel like it is precisely really, like the ability to eat for EA to kind of function according to its like most basic principles, I think has been very clearly and publicly degrading. But I feel like this, it's precisely this emotional detachment uh, for, uh, to like cultural issues and like thinking about it in terms of numbers that we're abandoning if we get fixated by, you know, like some weird forum post and not think about the actual quantitative impact that like EA has had. Right. So if like, you know, if, if you just like get mad about something you saw on Twitter about EA or something, instead of like looking at what has the actual impacts of the movement been in a sort of detached way from what do you think about the cultural values some of the community members and the movement might have, uh, you know, like you're, you're kind of making the same mistake then. What do you mean? Like the, the mistake I, I think of you're kind of asserting that like the that like the forum doesn't matter. Whereas, like, I think the forum just does matter. It matters far right? less like than place. Like, sure, it matters. I'm, but I'm saying, like, I, 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 I feel like a sub point you're making is that because it might have a bad effect on the forum, the community shouldn't think about animal welfare or something like that. Whereas, I think like the forum is so much less consequential than however many whatever the impact that EA can have on animal welfare, right? Like I, so I don't think it's isolated to just the forum, right? It's the entire, it is a kind of cultural thing, but I don't think you can, equi- there, I don't think you can, uh, you can draw an equivalence between kind of like concern for culture and like emotional derangement. Also, I, I feel like you're mixing up different issues that are like the Bostrom apology is different from the shrimp welfare report, right? And it's not all from... Wait, like, it's uh, very clear that these welfare. things are correlated. What? Well, how, how so? Like, well, in what sense is the shrimp welfare stuff correlated with the Bostrom Report? They're saying it's, the same kind of people believe in like, both? So what do you mean, do you believe in both? As in, like, there's a correlation between the kind of people who believe in shrimp welfare and the kind of people who uh, wanted Bostrom to go away? Yeah, for sure. I would commit, like, a very large probability to that correlation being, like, even if that was true, right? Like, like there was a correlation in the '60s between people who thought that like black people were equal and people who were communists. There, uh, not that every person on each camp was the other, right? But there was a correlation there. So what? Like one one of them can be true and the other one can be false, right? But like, if there's a correlation, like in that scenario, right? You can still use like knowing nothing else. Obviously, you can get better information. But knowing nothing else, you should still use that as a kind of filter to get rid of communists. But we do right? know other things. We know that, like, I, I guess we like this is a different sort of debate about animal welfare. But like, 
it just seems like going into like this subcategory like it, it, it's like trying to like talk about like how these like NAACP is infiltrated with communists when you're like okay do you think like black people should have equal rights or not and like that's the fundamental issue right like why are we having these sub sub debates about like what do these like black panthers believe and things like that like l- let's just talk about the main thing here which is like, like you can have the actual debate as well like part part of this is like the, the time constraint right i also think that it's just like a very clearly warped utility function. So I should probably like have have that up front, right? But like the argument is not that I'm trying to pose right now is not even that like the animal welfare people like are kind of morally warped, but that that has like a basically a contagion effect, right? Like that's the point. It might but it's like okay, I'll, like if it's some vague contagion effect that we can't even like specifically identify, I'll take it for you know whatever good impact we can have on animal welfare. I think that you just assign like a very large positive value to animal welfare that I think is almost negligible. Let's look it up. Like, like, okay, well, like this effective is just altruism impact on uh, impact on animals or something like that. Like I, I would doubt it's negligible. Uh, no, this is just a completely different de- definition of terms. Like, you just think animals matter much more than I do. I don't think if we did, like, an actual research of, like, oh, how many animals effective altruism had an impact on that we would necessarily disagree on that number. I see. But then, so, yeah, so I guess that's the point of disagreement, right? Like, the disagreement is... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but it's like... If they did matter, what impact they had on, like, the forum would matter much less to me than, like, are we doing something good about them? But if, like, the fundamental debate is about, like, whether they matter or not, it's, like, separate from, like, I feel like the, the, what impact they might or might not have on the epistemics is, like, a side issue than, like, or, like the object-level issue of, like, are, do they matter or not? Well, no, it, it's definitely it's definitely related, right? Like, I would, if, if I took, like, like, if I had very short AI timelines, I would be willing to kind of, like, destroy EA to, like, solve the AI alignment problem, Right. But if I did not, right, if I thought it was like a mild problem, but maybe not that severe, then maybe I would not be willing to destroy EA in order to solve the alignment problem. So, like, obviously, these are relative relative goods. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And then, like, uh, uh, can you tie back that, that back into like, uh, I, I think I missed like what, what point you were trying to Yeah. Make. So, like, the point is, right? Like, the point is that we can have a discussion about like the deleterious impact on on the ability of like ea itself to process information while not being able to completely resolve the other question right like these are like two sides of the equation that you have to balance but you can kind of compute one side of the equation ahead of time yeah but i feel like the 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 worst sort of epistemic impact you can have on a movement is just by like having these sort of like third order debates about like what potential impact something might have rather than just talking about the object level concern this seems very similar by the way to like how when like a woke person is like let's not even talk about group differences because it might potentially have an impact on you know racist outcome like people might become like subliminally racist if you discuss it um whereas it's like it that might be true but like i I don't see like that's a good enough reason to like if on object level it's true it's true if on object level it's false it's false and like these sort of like sort of like broader cultural or community or epistemic concerns i feel like it's kind of a a cop-out you know I don't think, like, that parallel kind of erases the distinction between, like, being correct and incorrect, right? Like, the woke people are incorrect about group differences. That's why it's bad, 
right? If they were correct about like group differences and this just being like made up and this actually being like a threat to like actual true things instead of just like regime inheritance, right? Then that would actually be a good thing. Like, like that, that kind of comparison just erases the distinguishment, like the distinction between like things that are true and things that are false. Yeah, but I, I, I like I, I guess I just don't see the connection between like somebody writing some sort of uh, report on shrimp welfare, ergo, ergo, the whole community's epistemic norms have like gotten significantly worse in some way. It, that, that seems a it's little... obviously not monocausal in that way, right? Like the point is that the expansion of the moral circle and really this kind of like invitation for for like utility function warping is what drives EA in a more kind of basically oligarchic direction, right? Is, is a way, is, is what drives EA in a direction that is more towards like basically um, bureaucratic rather than rational discourse norms. And like, maybe you just think that you don't think discourse norms are that important relative oh, no. to That's like not what I'm saying. issue it is. But like, in that case, that might just be a kind of like axiomatic disagreement. No, no, no. That, I, that's not. That's not what I'm saying. I, 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 I'm just skeptical that it actually does lead to worse discourse norms. Okay. So, so what's like the speed run of making that case? Well, right? it's like I, I like, feel like it's incumbent on you to make the case that, like, you're the one making the proposition that they yeah, made yeah, 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 worse. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just am, like, like this is asking me myself this this, oh, this kind it. of speed run. I see. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. And then yeah, I, I guess I just like. I, I, I didn't find it convincing as like the speed run of my argument. Um, yeah, that's yeah, fine. That's yeah, fine. Don't yeah. worry. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like you've, you've read the Hanania feminization article. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Right? I think there's something like, to it. One, once you make one of the conversation options, like alter the utility function by adding more grievances. I think that has a very deleterious effect on the kind of like conversational game theory. Right. If if you have basically if the only way to like increase utils is to be smarter and to come up with a more effective plan, then then that creates a very different conversational dynamic than if if there's a way to use utils and that's or like a way to increase utils is by like introducing new things and assigning them utils. Um I, I do agree that there can be like a negative effect to people like in general, feeling that the way to, I guess, like get some notoriety is to just come up with new unique ideas uh, rather than, I don't know, just like making the, the lives better of people they've already identified or something like that. But I haven't seen enough of that where like I think it's, it's going to be like a big concern or it won't like just autocorrect if like people just get too crazy about it. And okay. I, I do think I, I mean, like that's a that's a bet we can make for the future, right? Maybe or, that's a pretty good way to close this out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess like I, the, the details like we would iron out. And also, I think uh, like the argument proves too much in the sense that it's a sort of argument you could have made at any different point. And I do take your point that like in other cases, they might have been correct, whereas in this case, you think they're wrong. Um, but like you, but if, if the argument I'm really making is like, uh, could we have just said at any different point when the moral circle was expanded, like when it was expanded in terms of race or gender or whatever, that like, oh, you know, we should think about the sort of like, uh, we shouldn't do this and because it might have some sort of like second order effects on how our epistemic norms. I feel like in those cases, we'd be like, maybe, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe. I think that's clear with gender, right? I think like, yeah, but like obviously throughout, throughout history, there, there have been like, it's, it's never been a case that zero value were assigned to women, 
but I think definitely the erosion of, um, like, I mean, some of this is kind of like top-down stuff, like affirmative action or like HR laws, but in general, I do think the cultural evolution uh, or like the cultural devolution of free speech norms and of academic debate norms uh, tied to the introduction of women has been deleterious. It, so it, it has been deleterious in certain ways. Like, even if it's true that it's been deleterious in those ways and that's caused by feminization, I think the broader fact, like, you know, like, like there is a point to the idea that, like, if you read, like, histories of, like, how women were treated, like, a hundred years ago, they were, like, treated as second-class citizens. And that's, like, 50% of the population. Like, I would rather have worse universities than have, like, 50% of the population that's, like, you know, just, like, has, like, miserable lives. There is a kind of midpoint between these two. Sure. Yeah. Right. And I would agree with that as well. But I'm saying like, okay. in those cases, I would say like expand the moral circle, even if it has those kind of consequences. I think in this case, there's just like, it is a kind of quantitative difference, right? Like there, there's, you know, this is like continuity. There is some kind of point in the middle where you would say like, stop expanding the moral circle. This is that this is going too far. Right. So like, even within that kind of sub case, right. And I see like, the animal welfare as even an even more extreme version of that, right? So whatever subcase you think is the subcase where you should stop expanding the moral circle, isn't it before that point? Before what? Like, I, I think you just expand it to the point where it's like actually object level correct. Uh, like if, if animals, like if, if their suffering is bad, then like, I, I think like worrying about some forum is like a much smaller concern than their suffering. And like, yeah, it, it just like it, it, it's just like very hard to know in general, like what are the cultural consequences of things like no, nobody could have predicted the cultural consequences of feminization or of, you know, like HR or whatever in terms of like race and things like that. It, it, you know, like you couldn't just you just couldn't have known that in advance. So the best thing you can do is just do what is object level good and correct. And it's some, you know, maybe maybe the second order effects might be good. The second order effects might be bad. Um some of the second order effects of feminization have been good, right? Uh, but like, just like in general, like you, you, you can't know these things in advance. You just like, I try to do what's good and then hope for the best. Wait, but there were people who predicted that, you know, like mostly paleo conservative writers at this point, right? Like Burnham does a lot of this as well, right? <laughs> it's not like people did not see this coming. Maybe they were not like particularly specific, but in terms of like expected value, there are definitely people who are much clearer on this than the kind of like wild-eyed version. Yeah, but right? in, in, in the like, case of like animal welfare in particular, I it just like you know what what is it like twelve billion chickens or something, and they have like miserable lives. Um, I guess like it's a different question of like whether you value that or not. But if you do value that, I really can't see how what wh whatever like cultural impact it will have to include them in the moral circle could like outweigh reducing that suffering. Yeah, I think if you're if you're like fully bought onto the kind of if if you you kind of like this is kind of like a uh excuse the pun chicken and egg problem, right? Um <laughs> it really is, right? Because you're coming from the perspective where it's already expanded. Like that's the problem. Like like you're saying like if if the moral circle is already expanded, then I don't know why you would not expand the moral circle. Or in, in terms of like, since we've already expanded it to like, uh, you know, like in terms of race and gender, is that what you mean? No, like you're basically saying, right? Like 
you, you were saying, like, if you consider these chickens' lives to be suffering, right, then why would you not consider them, or, like, if you consider these chickens' lives to be suffering and that that matters, why would you not consider that they're suffering and that matters? No, the, the, I, 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 that's what I specifically said. Like, the, there's a separate question of whether you think they matter. But if you do think they matter, then the cultural impacts are relatively small in comparison. But it's just, like, a separate right, debate about whether, whether they matter. Whether you think they matter should be relative to the cultural norms. That's the entire point. But that's, that's literally what I just said. Like, and I'm, but different things, like, if they matter, then they matter more than the cultural norms is what I'm saying. If they matter, yeah, but like, you should have, this is what I'm talking about when it comes to path dependency, right? Like, you can't, this is not a kind of like, this is not a kind of individual judgment, right? Okay, maybe this is the difference, right? Maybe this is the difference. It's like, it's like Confucian, Confucian ethics versus kind of like, I don't know, like Western individualist ethics, right? I don't think there's like an individual like decision of whether, yeah, I think this is it. This is it. There's not like an individual decision of whether, of whether like the animals matter, right? This is a kind of moral question. And so it's mostly societally absorbed. And once you kind of initiate the social process that like basically flips the switch, right? You you're no longer able to make the kind of cost benefit decisions around that. Okay, like, but, but, that's the point that I want to make. But I, I'm not refusing to make those cost benefit assessments. I'm just saying that even when you iron all those out, like I, it's hard for me to see how the cost outweigh the benefits. I think you're coming once again. Like I think you're coming like I, I, from I, I, that. I, I, I'm coming from the perspective of recognizing that there are benefits. <laughs> Right, right. Like, but like uh, that—that should be part of the debate, right? Like, we should, you think we should not talk about the potential benefits of expanding the moral circle? Like, those are part of the d- debates. Yes, right? and so like, so are the costs, right? But like, we have, that's why they should be included in the debate. And that's why it's part of the cost. That's why it should be included. So, like, the problem is right. Like, you basically have these kind of utility function differences like the kind of like soft version of this this is actually a very interesting conversation right because the kind of like soft version of this is that you just have to agree to disagree right if you're just taking it from the individual like rationalist perspective right it's just that like some people assign value to chickens some people don't and like you're basically trying and like there's no really like there's no really kind of like bridging the two right so that's like one version of this and like that's the version of this we can settle on basically like if you're tired (laughs) But, like, the more interesting version of this, right, is, like, what is the social process that intermediates the two? That's what I'm kind of interested in, right? Yeah. uh, I mean, it's, like, like an interesting question. Um, Like, the question is, right, like, as a kind of, like, social artifact, right, should you be pushing the social artifacts towards more people, more people going in in the group where they think that, chickens matter or like more people pushing to the group where they don't but, right but part and of like there, there is a kind of like there's a kind of like lame version of this where you know like you just take the position of whatever group you're in right but then there's like a more interesting equilibrium position that i like what, what is the position okay maybe this is just like bad to explain to westerners sorry go ahead <laughs> um like uh, 
obviously the part of whether we should expand the moral circle has to include the calculus of like whether those beings deserve to be included and like whether it would have good consequences on them to be included like it it feels like having not including that in the debate it it would be unfair right but you have like you have to get that that's like very variant depending on the people. Yeah, no, right? I agree. Like, so, 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 like, okay, it's like so, a separate so here's how you model this, right? Okay, I'm like, yeah. So here's how you moral, you like model this, right? There's one group of people who assign basically like some kind of positive value to it, and then like one group of people who, who doesn't, right? And you can you can like interpret the entire thing as like a as like a basically like an evolutionary structure that basically like increases like that functions as a group. And either has a group moral circle that like expands or contracts based on the constituents of the group. And like the question is then, right, for like the the own group's continued existence, what is most what is what is like the kind of game theoretic equilibrium of that? But I, I feel like you're trying to make these sorts of uh grave um grave estimates of like the consequences of including animals in the moral circle and i'm i'm just not like it's not clear to me like why you think all these bad things will happen separate from the question of like whether animals suffer and whether we should do anything about it like uh yeah i I don't want to concede the fact that like i'm not even sure like why you think it'll have all these negative consequences it seems more like a yeah yeah (laughs) sure yeah we can go back to that as well we can go back to like this really is kind of like micro interaction stuff of like, okay, what is the game theory given, you know, you have this opportunity to like expand the moral circle and introduce more utils for basically for free or like basically for like the cost of pleading, right? Like that's, okay, like maybe I should work through the logic here of like why that is actually bad. Maybe I'll write an article about this as well. (laughs) Um, But basically, yeah, like the, the process is very, very clear or like the process is very clear if you are like, so what's interesting is that there are like multiple iterations of this, right? You can kind of think of it as concentric or not even necessarily concentric, but kind of overlapping groups of like people who care about certain things, right? And so let's say like everyone in the group at least has one thing that they agree that they all care about. Let's say it's humans, right? And then like various sub subgroups care about other things. So like if you, ex- if you like continually expand the subgroup, to like things that like smaller and smaller portions of the group care about, right? And you're dilu- you're like diluting the funding accordingly. Then th- this is like kind of the repugnant conclusion, but not quite, right? You're kind of slowly diluting this money until it's spent on like basically more and more of whatever subgroup is like most able to add utils which is basically whatever subgroup is most able to introduce things to the utility function. That is not what the group actually like originally cared about. But, but effective altruism was started by like Peter Singers and like the Bull McCaskills. And they're like, it was like part of like basically the charter almost that to care about animal welfare. This is not like some new weird thing that was added on later on. This is like, this is like pretty fundamental to the movement. Uh, and like, are you, are you really that, like, is your concern really that you like really want this money to be spent on the malaria nets, but you're like worried it's going to be spent on, <laughs> you know, like chicken lobbying or something instead? Like, it, it, it's like, I don't know. It doesn't strike me that you think like the, the, the uh, like how important you think the malaria net stuff is either. I think the malaria stuff is pretty important, right? I think like, 
hilarious stuff and like especially like, is it actually true that there's a competition between those two kinds of resources like uh you know I, i'm pretty sure like you know Gitwall gives out like uh, hundreds of millions of dollars every year and like it gives them out to both of those things to a point where i like i'm guessing both of them are pretty well funded i don't think like they're having a scrounge from one to give to the other right so so you're saying okay so you're saying that it's basically the funding the funding level is important or like the funding level is uh or like basically neither are funding constraint um there's always constraints but i'm saying it's not to the level where yeah it's not clear like what 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 is achieved by excluding them for the moral criterion here like there there, there's always trade-offs i'm not disagreeing with that but the the potential of trade-offs should be enough for us to ignore something that might be important uh like yeah oh wait yeah, yeah so this is like a very like classically liberal way of way of thinking right like the main the main trade-off here is that you want to actually like reduce the number of people who have a voice like re- reduce the number of basically people who who have like a decision who have like a decision point because those people are necessarily going to create more basically like bureaucratic norms right like if you can create a selection effect that basically just like selects fewer people to make the same decisions then in my opinion, like that, or like not just in my opinion, right? This is also, you know, the trajectory of almost all kind of uh, eventually large businesses, right? That you're basically, there's like basically this like flow of time almost, or like this flow of entropy. This is how like Curtis Yarvin describes it, right? Of an evolution towards more bureaucratic discourse norms. And this generally happens by via like, the introduction of like people who do not have the kind of founding intuition, right? But, or not even intuition, but, but like but, the but founding again, like methodology. But but again, animal welfare is part of the founding like ideology of uh, effective altruism. Yeah, if you look at it, if you look at it from that way, like you can have the same. Yeah, like the question of animal wel- welfare. The problem there is like how do you how do you kind of like keep it contained. Right. And it, it really doesn't seem like, I mean, at this point, it doesn't seem like it, uh, you really can. I don't know. Like if they meant, if they managed to keep it contained, then maybe that's fine. Right. Like. Uh, the, the, yeah. I, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like we've gone enough circles here. I, I don't know if I will be able to manage to untangle this knot, but, um. No worries. Yeah, okay. Yeah. This is actually, this is actually the most, the most fun part for me so far. Yeah, yeah, okay. no, I, I like it too. Uh, yeah, yeah, we we can do another, we can do another uh, sequel or something. I don't know um, if you would like. But, sure, sure. Okay. Last question of the show. Always the last question of the show for every guest. What is something that we haven't talked about today that has too much order and needs more chaos, and something that has too much chaos and needs more order? That's an interesting question. Um. Well, what did we talk about today? We talked about like biographies, tech, um, progress, feminization, uh, effective altruism. I would say, uh, okay, education. We talked about education. I think education needs more chaos and less order, right? Like if people. Well, it's something that we did not talk about. Oh, just in like in general? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. Something that we have not talked about yet. Oh, got it. Okay. It's something we didn't talk about. Sorry about that. Um, it's more 
chaos. Childhood needs more chaos. Uh, I, I, I feel like we, we just have like, we just, uh, we just infantilize kids by having the, you know, putting them in prison for eight hours a day and having these like strict routines and doing these like, you know, like cookie cutter clubs and whatever. And you read like biographies of people, of interesting people. Often they are like doing really like adult things by the time they're 12 or 14, they're traveling the world. They have, you know, hardcore jobs. So the childhood needs more chaos. What needs more order? Um, this is kind of like a basic answer, but just like urban governance is <laughs> an answer you could probably expect. Uh, but like, you know, the city of San Francisco needs more order. <laughs> the police department here needs more order um, and so on. Hello? All right. Uh, yeah. Great. I'm sorry. I thought you were going to keep going. But yeah, it's been it's been almost three hours. Uh, I enjoyed it. At least I don't know if you enjoyed it. No, I, it, I did enjoy it. This is, this is like my, you know, I, I do have that sort of mode of, I forgot the names you used, but that sort of more masculine form of uh, discourse of the... I think orthotypic yeah, versus yeah, heterotypic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I enjoy, yeah, yeah, I enjoy it. This was great. Yep, yep. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Drakesh Patel. I hope you liked it. If you did, you can subscribe. You'll get another great episode next week, every single Monday. Other things you can do to help us out is, like I mentioned at the top of the show, you can share, you can let a friend know, and you can also subscribe on Substack, where I also offer a paid subscription, and get some interesting articles there as well. Finally, you can always leave a positive review on any podcast app, or leave a comment on either the podcast app or on Substack, and suggest some future guests for the show. All of that would be much appreciated, And we'll be back next week with another great episode.